welcome to the Crash Chords Podcast. I'm Steve. I'm John. And I'm Matt, a.k.a. Stormageddon. And fear our presence. I'm... I'm... I, I, I don't mean, think I, we're very scary. I mean, uh, I'm often no, referred no. to as the Dark Lord of All. So. In fact, you were quite uplifting in that <laughs> How cordial for you to say that. You were right. way too uplifting to be fearful. Like <laughs> Fear our presence. Yeah. Golly that's gee. True. Yeah, that's true. There was a lot of positivity in that statement. That doesn't really work for fearing like a, someone. For a variety show. Yeah, <laughs> right. Well, yeah. variety shows are scary for a whole other set of reasons. That's true. Well, all right. There, see, I intended that. No, you didn't. No. <laughs> you didn't no. even a little bit. Believe that I did. Uh, no, I've decided not to, actually. No, no, let him play it off. Let him play it off. I, I, I can't. But why? <laughs> I, okay. can't, I won't even try. He's got nothing. Um, yeah, we, we have more fearful things coming today, I think. So, yeah, you don't need to be fearful of us. You just need to be fearful of our subject matters, and that's all. Today's album, I initially surveyed it for no other reason than, hmm, interesting name. Diamanda Galas. And then I quickly realized that this is actually something that I've been seeking to bring onto the show for a very, very long time. For clickbait's sake... This is straight up, no holds barred, avant-garde. What's the uh, pregnant pause for? Absolutely nothing. I don't okay. know. I, I don't know. <laughs> you were expecting fanfare, maybe? I don't know. Maybe listeners might react and convulse with terror. <gasps> I don't know. I might. He could re-edit this and put in a fanfare. That's true. <laughs> Actually, it would be more dour than That's that. True. Uh, just, a just. Sadder version all right, fine. That. There's nothing to be scared of in the <laughs> intro in which I'm going to read. First, where I'm coming from, it's not that I'm like automatically an avant-garde promoter or anything. Some of it genuinely gets me, and some of it genuinely gets to me. But for that matter, I don't think composers really say to themselves, "I'm going to be." An avant-garde musician. No, it's just people writing from the heart like any musician, but with extremely internalized processes. Processes that frequently defy comparison and categorization. Sometimes even education because they're so born of the moment. It's kind of hard to teach matters of the soul, as they say. Which, artists, artists. Which is something we've often talked about. Like, the genrefication is really the industry putting labels on the artist, not the artist labeling themselves. Yeah. And Some this is, labels this is in, like an anti-genre anyway. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. But for, for that reason, since it is kind of a Curious term. I'm going to offer a little brief etymology on it. On the term avant-garde, just for those who aren't aware, because this isn't a term to toss around lightly. As with a great many things, it is from the French, French for advance guard or vanguard. It was actually a military term since the 15th century for those who push ahead in front of the group. And so if you're not catching the artistic analogy by now, you ought to not be here. But it didn't start to be applied to art, actually, until the early 20th century. That's a, a recent development. Now, I know there's going to be a lot of disagreement out there as to which forms of art are truly advancing art. So the word is probably best used in hindsight. I think it's the attempt that's more what's important. And, and much like the military context, it's not always going to be successful. You send them out ahead of the ranks, hoping for the best, because you have to take the offensive at some point, but there will be losses. There's artists who bear their soul and crumble under public disapproval. Kind of takes some gumption to be in the field, I think. And believe me, there is reason to approach avant-garde material with some trepidation, because it often exists on the fringe of what is or isn't music, or even musical. So much so that when we get to the 20th century, from like 1910 on, avant-garde visual art was not just considered to be scary, but actually dangerous because it could be used to wage psychological warfare. The CIA actually had exhibitions with works from Jackson Pollock to Mark Rothko to influence Soviets and make them question their leaders. So on one hand, it's manipulative, but yet it's all fair game because it's art. And when you think about it, isn't all art kind of manipulative? I think that's the fun of it. I mean, I guess so, yeah. It, it's funny. You know, you, you have to think, like, the songs that are truly cheesy or sappy or really sad, mm. the tearjerkers, you have to imagine some of them are designed that way. Like, to make you cry. Make, like, how I feel in some Pixar movies, actually. Yeah. It's like, I feel like they're designed 
to make me cry, and yet uh, recognizing that, so you feel a little violated as a result, right? But but that said, I also acknowledge that it is tapping into something within me, right? But it does feel like certain some of those moments are predestined to do that, which is like you know what we call propaganda, propaganda. They're tapping yeah. into things inside you anyway. It's just that we call that manipulative, but yet it all really tries to do something to you anyway, right? You know, it's just I guess it's really up to you at the end. You can put a stone cold face on and then just choose not to be affected by anything, but some stuff is definitely more powerful than others. Yeah. So yeah, psychological warfare, that's what we brought you today in the form of Diamanda Galas. Really, stick around, it's gonna be fun. So Diamanda Galas is a soprano, pianist, composer, performance artist, and also a painter. She's been around a while, kind of making waves, and is kind of a cult legend. First off, as a classically trained singer, she's got some serious, serious chops, having, at least from one source that I read, a three and a half octave range. Now that's a lot, but it also doesn't come close to describing what makes her stand out in a crowd. Her voice has been described as being capable of the most unnerving vocal terror. Mark N. Grant of New Music Magazine called her an aesthetic revolutionary. And so, going hand in hand with her musical capabilities, she also brings in some pretty dark literary themes to her work. Topics such as AIDS, mental illness, despair, injustice, condemnation, and also the loss of dignity. And she channels all of this through her voice, lyrics notwithstanding. And then musically, the influence, well, like we just said, it's kind of all over the place when you're talking about avant-garde and also no place at once. Her voice has been set to the classical scene, to the jazz scene, blues, metal. Uh, at least all of those groups have kind of inducted her at various times <laughs> in their, uh, I guess, in their purview of what they take influence from. And also being of Greek descent, there's a lot of Greek musical influence in there as well. At the end, she'll just play what she feels like playing, and it's for that reason that I need to share with you just a glimpse of her personality. This is an excerpt from an interview that she did with Rolling Stone uh, when prompted on a question about her performance of O Death, which is going to be on this album. And she said, <clears throat> I'm going to show you what my performance really is, because anything else is going to be academic. What's the point? This is what it is. And she puts her hands on the table, she closes her eyes, and she's quiet for 15 seconds. And suddenly, it's all laid down right behind my skull and it comes forth. Bam! And then the keyboard and the voice, they just do what they're told. I'm not doing anything. I'm not doing a fucking thing. I'm not trying anything. Say I'm up here, I'm starting with the amanes, that's sort of a Greek lament, by the way. And then I'm going through these things, people call it microtonal inflections. What the fuck do they know from microtonal inflections? It's not microtones, it's complicated melodies. That's what amanes are. It's microtonal, but we don't use that word. So I'm doing this thing, and she starts singing, that builds to something else. Suddenly, there's a high note. Why? Because I feel that emotion. Then there's a trill. Then there's another high note. Then maybe you decide to go into a semitonal relationship, so you're doing two trills at the same time, going into multiphonics. Now it's pitches that generate octaves beneath it, and you sustain that shit while you've got this ostinato figure in the bass. That's fine. You go back to the amanis in a low voice. Start the text. Interrupt the text. Go back to the amanis. Going back. Continuing a long legato melody. It's not broken by the need to breathe because you know how to sing. So the technique informs the road. You don't interrupt it because you don't have to interrupt it because you know how to sing. You just keep going, and then you break it. You keep breaking it, and you're breaking it, and breaking it, and you're des desiccating it, and putting it back together until it becomes a new life form. And then you rip it apart again, and then it gets bigger, and bigger, and bigger, and bigger, and more massive, and then you rip it, and it's just a shred of sound. See what I mean? Wow. The interviewer just said, yeah. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> if he course, really what knew. what else would you say? I don't know if he really knew what she meant, but uh, we're going to try to figure out what she means on her latest album, All The Way, which is another album that I'm kind of bending the rules on because we are imperfect creatures. This is technically a cover album. 
actually it is a cover album. Every title here does have its origins in works by other artists. And it's kind of an interesting blend of artists. We'll announce them as we go. But it's that juxtaposition of a familiar tune with her signature twist, which really really, really understates it, I think. You never quite know what you're going to get on this album, and that's why I stress it's only technically a cover album. She upturns, if, if not the foundation, the emotional veneer of what these songs are, so that I didn't recognize them at all, except only occasionally by title alone, and then I had to slowly confirm these tracks to be covers, one by one, using some sources and also sifting through her lyrics. And believe me, on this album, sifting through lyrics is a challenge. Yeah, I uh, I would not have known this was a cover album had you not told me. Mm-hmm. Um, I absolutely, even moments later on the album where I recognized melodies, I only think I recognized them because I knew to look for them. Whereas had I not known that it was a cover, I wouldn't have looked for them and I would just go, oh, it kind of sounds like such and such or yeah. a certain genre. I, I think it was by reading this interview that I caught across, I caught a couple of titles and I was like, oh, oh, so those are covers. Oh, okay, all right, yeah. And I thought back, of course I know All the Way by Frank Sinatra is the very of first course. track and of course that's the title of the album so that's what she was pulling from there and then a couple of other things started coming together. But the, uh, the other things I had to prove, you know, I had to yeah. go out and seek the lyrics that I can kind of hear from her and prove them to be covers. So, uh, speaking of covers, let's go to the album cover uh, which, well, <laughs> This one's it's pretty just, straightforward. It is very straightforward. It's just her, and maybe in a little bit of an on-the-nose fashion, yes, we have an inverted color scheme. It's a photo negative. Yeah, exactly. It's a photo negative of her in what looks like a trench coat and fingerless gloves. Oh, no, just biker gloves, actually. And then in the juxtaposition, the color in the negative space around her, it has her name and the album title. And that's really it. We only have a few colors here, black, blue, white... Technically, black and white are not colors, they're shades. That's why it's like a negative, but it's not a traditional negative of like a black and white thing. I don't know. I don't know, actually. I don't know whether the true opposite would yield me the correct image. So That's fo- what I don't know. Photo negatives tend to not just be black and white. They tend to have colors in the swap. Okay, you're right, yeah. And so I'm confident that it is actually a, f- a photo negative swap. However, either way, it does deliver... The emotional impact that I think she's going for in a lot of her performance art, just based on what I know of it now, like there's a little unnerving nature to this photo because it does look familiar, yet not. Well, maybe even just the fact that it being a negative, being an inverted scheme, you have these inversions. I call them upending or upturning, you know, the original intent of of the song lyrics, which it doesn't do in every single case, but clearly, because of how unrecognizable they are, there is a lot that has been warped. So she shows you the warping effect right there. Which, to my eyes, is actually a little bit curious because she seems to uh, be pulling a page out of the EDM techno book using very bright neon coloration and everything like that, which is kind of the opposite of what she usually produces, or at least what she's producing on this album itself. Uh, Having that uh, not just a photo negative effect, but also a black light effect. On well, it's, everything. yeah, it's like an image backlit almost by a black light, or maybe shined with a black light even. Yeah, and having a lot of brightness, and also just the uh, almost spotlighting effect on certain aspects: her elbow, her shoulder, her left arm, along her the bottom of her waist, along the line right there. It's it's almost like a burn effect on top of it. Mm-hmm. A little bit of the photo itself, kind of. F- decomposing after exposure to light. But taking that effect and adding it in, sort of mixing it up with what I actually would normally see in a rave. 
essentially. Just that sort of coloration, especially with the very solid uniform black background and also allowing her facial features to blend into it aside from just the nostrils the lips the Mm -hmm. eyes it's it's a weird effect and it actually set me up for a completely different album here like my visual taste my visual knowledge of what i normally would expect on an album of abc is is presented on something that's actually X Y Z. Like nothing normal here. <laughs> but Absolutely not. I, I get that from that point of view. Yeah. From from in that respect, but it, I don't. I really don't think it actually sets up this album, but it sets up an album at odds with itself. An album that is meant to be along the fringe. Because also with all my references to raves and EDM. That was very much a part of the scene when electronica became popular, when raves were a thing. They were fringe ideas. They were along the edge. They were for the outcasts and for the individuals that are dissatisfied with the norm. So in that case, I think she's using Well, them and a number of other groups. (laughs) But but you you get what I'm saying. You don't have have raves in the Waldorf. You have raves in broken-down Brooklyn factories and things like that. Yeah, you I have it along the fringe. And I do think maybe your perspective on that is being a little bit influenced by the fact that you see the blacklight in this so heavily. Yes. That's know, just I that's the visual I can't see that. component. When I think maybe, you know, this is definitely uh, an album cover that is very easy to overanalyze. I yeah. think it really is just simply the inverted scheme. And maybe the only little layer that I'll add is just the fact that uh, maybe it's just inherently the process of, you know, a negative it kind of makes it almost look as if it were an x-ray a little bit, yep. in which case you're kind of seeing into her, you know, into right. her the, her depths, her soul and itself. And I think it's not actually an x-ray, <laughs> it's just this fact of kind of how hollow the colored parts yeah. look. I- I think Make it feel that way. Many negatives of people would probably almost appear as yeah. if it were an X. I, maybe it's just because I'm looking at her hands, and it almost looks like you can see the fingers outlined very narrowly. Probably yeah. just because, because those were, you know, slightly lighter spots compared to the uh, sections in between, the more of the webbing in between, which are lighter here, so therefore they were darker there, you know. But it just makes it look as if it was like a skeletal kind of thing. Yeah. It's, it's also because of that shading effect that's going on here. Colors are very uniform in this. There's not a whole lot of grade between the darker and lighter blue that's going on. You, you have very clear cuts. That's another reason why I went to the EDM. You have very sharp colors yeah. with black light, with glow sticks, with things like that. They're very confined and very specific. That's that's just where I'm drawing yeah. it from. I should have sent this thing through Photoshop before coming. I want to see like exactly, right, exactly what it looks like. All right, well... Let's move on to track one, which is called All the Way, named after the album itself, which is named after the 1957 Frank Sinatra song written, actually written, of course, because most of these, you know, big crooner songs were written by different people. They of were course. They were sung yeah. by the big known figure. They were written by Jimmy Van Heusen, uh, lyrics also by Sammy Kahn, and it was actually introduced in a film. I never knew that before, and the film was The Joker is Wild, and that's the first place you heard it, and then, of course, it would probably have come out on the very next Frank Sinatra release, but apparently that's a a lot of these tracks were introduced. Introduced in the film first, and then they appear on the soundtrack. Well, back in those days when people like Frank, Frank Sinatra and Elvis Presley were yep. in big movies, yeah. the songs were linked to those movies to help sell the movie first and then released on something yeah. else later. Um, and by the way, it is probably worth it, in my opinion, to just, just check out if you've never heard the original versions. I mean, I feel like a lot of people have heard the Frank Sinatra song here, but just check them out. Just go on Spotify and look at the originals to see exactly what she's done, because... 
If we're just gonna start getting the beginning of this track, well, of course, it's nothing like the Frank Sinatra piece. It has a fairly expressionist piano intro. And at this point, you know, I, it's not that I was expecting to find Frank Sinatra, even though I, I did know going into that, I recognized the title, but I, at this point, I had not even been reminded of the tune for maybe up to a minute, probably not until you hear her vocals, and her, her vocals in a, quite a few of these tracks don't appear until a minute in. A very elaborate piano intros. Yeah, I would say that the, the first thing that stood out to me about this track is this, I called it a cat running around on the keys of a piano moment. The, the first at least 30 seconds are frantic enough, but playful enough that it sounds to me like someone scampering on piano keys. My choice is uh, the raindrop effect. The, the You don't quite hear it pitter-pattering to a beat, but you hear it trying to trying to emerge into something else. But when it actually turns very serious, very almost Plotting is the wrong word, but it's the only word that really comes to mind right away because it seems to go just completely dour on you. It has a lot of those twists and turns within this first minute. And, you know, it's not, it's also, just to go the opposite route, it's not without its kind of back alley charm either. Right. Um, you know, we toss around the word noir a lot, but this is like a, a smoke-filled nightclub after closing hours when probably no one's where they should be, you know, in the, they're all, you know, just sneaking out late at night. It's, it's, it's a very odd scene, but it's, it's trying to make them feel at home. It's very strange, creeping, a slow creeping piano uh, to start, ampled use of augmented chords, which is a, a major chord with a raised fifth, so it's kind of creating stacks of major thirds, and those wide spaces fill the space with mystery. It makes the music sound evasive. But this comes off to me as a as a faux seriousness. It, it it's almost an idealized kind of noir piece. Like it feels a little bit too specifically pro propelling itself forward in that in that dour and serious nature. To have it go from so playful to so not so quickly. Uh, makes me feel like it's trying to spin me on my head a little bit too hard. Yeah, it's trying to evade you, I think. Yeah. Um, and yeah, with those wild shifts in register, that's another thing that's really odd. But, you know, you add to that several other elements, these abrupt grace notes, even in the low end, you know, but up, but up, but up. It, it makes this actually very hard to follow along to any pulse, considering that it's just one performer at this stage. I guess there's really no reason to have a pulse. She can, as I read, you know, in her intro, she can be as impulsive as she wants. And really, the door is wide open for that. So it's just interesting to hear that on a, a studio album, even though I do believe a lot of these were taken from, from straight-up performances. Mm -hmm. So I'm not, I don't know about that in every single instance, but that's, that's kind of the idea here. That's at least what you should be experiencing in your headphones. And then, of course, there are tensions. You know, just blatant eruptions and bursts of energy and a clicking of what kind of sounds like nails on the chalkboard, which is so pronounced that I have to assume that it's intentional. And of course, my piano teacher always told me to trim my nails before lessons and things like that. But you know what? Sure. Why can't that be an artistic choice? It's kind of percussive, right? Yeah, so sure. You add the percussiveness to the existing percussion, and now you have two. Also, I found it interesting that at 38 seconds in, it almost sounds briefly as if it's headed for like a tango-like figuration or something like that. And then it just kind of shakes that off as if it never happened. It never really commits to that completely. And so by a minute in, when we sort of start to wrap this up with the chords kind of twisting us around, I actually thought the 
the piano was was going to do something else because they had already, you know, shifted up so many times. I was like, yeah, well, if it's already done this for a minute straight, why not do it for another minute, you know, or or, or two, three, four, five minutes? I thought it was maybe going to be the whole piece, and in which case, the the all the way, the 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 cover that we're going to be following the melody of might have just have been the piano itself. Again, I don't know Diamanda at this stage, <coughs> but. Then, of course, we do get those vocals, and it's just a minute and ten seconds in, and it's just a long, steady screech. Well, not even a screech, because it's not very pitchy yet. It's just ee, and she holds that single tone, a long, breathy, almost undead drone, which to me, considering this was my first impression her, I thought was rather bone-chilling. Yeah, it was a little unnerving for me. Um, you know, I have here written that the lyrics were haunting, but the reality is it wasn't the lyrics, it was the singing. Yeah. The singing sent shivers down my spine. And I think what also really emphasized it is not long after that when we start to actually get the vocals, there are heavy, impactful thuds on the piano as well, slamming into it almost cartoonishly, which kind of almost made me then juxtapose to that laugh a little because it just seemed in a group listen so bizarre it almost struck me as funny yeah the context of where when and where you listen i think is very important uh in this album i the the weakness of the vocals i think was actually the the best part of the whole piece specifically where you were talking about those slams it was a great contrast between the two but for me it comes off very childlike, very immature, especially because of the pitch changes that occur. Especially because, well, her high register is frankly astounding what she can do with it. Yeah. Not just the register itself, but what she's able to warble and, and whirl around and other W descriptors. She makes just, it feel very natural in a very unnatural spot. But it, it feels like vocal breaking, the sort of thing you would get in adolescence, the sort of thing you would get as, you know, you're growing up. It just breaks every once in a while, and you have to go with it. You have to just, you know, kind of just ignore it and move on and hope that nobody really notices it. Here, we're, we're being forced to notice, and that... I like. I, I like that aspect of it because it's presenting a very unusual context, an unusual place to be coming from. Which is but, and here's where my, one of my first major buts come in. I'm not really getting creepy. I'm not really getting fearful or anything like that. I'm getting dour. It's matching the music for me. It's It feels serious but sad. That childlike nature to it makes it feel a little bit kitschy. But I can see how it feels very important to a child. And I think that's where I'm getting... I think that's where our biggest disagreements are going to end up for this album. P.S. I do have a lot of disagreements. The the nature of the vocals, because I feel like... Yes, she's not an adolescent, but I feel like that's what she's trying to emulate. She's trying to emulate that that broken and tumultuous aspect of somebody's life. Well, let me find some common ground with you here, because if you consider the fact that, you know, adolescents are usually pretty testy, are usually a yeah. little bit angsty, you know, mm -hmm. then you find a lot of these, you know, back and forths kind of grappling with moments where it's like, wow, that was very astute, very adult of you, and then all of a sudden, you child, you know, what did you just do right there? In which case, of course, I feel like we never lose all of that 
as we progress in age. And of course, you know, like I said in the beginning, she's been around a while. She's been doing this for a very long time. But I feel like there are some subjects in which we're kind of going to be grappling with those back and forths constantly. Which is why at a certain point I had to start going back to the lyrics and look up the original Frank Sinatra lyrics and try to isolate exactly what she was doing to them. That's where it became kind of interesting. If you look at just the first verse of the Frank Sinatra tune, when somebody loves you, it's no good unless he loves you all the way. Happy to be near you when you need someone to cheer you all the way. And of course, when Frank Sinatra, he's he's trying to make you feel really, really good at the end of the day. Like this, this track. He's a crooner. That's he's what a crooner. his job was. At the, at the, when the song is over, you're going to forget your worries mm -hmm. and move on with life. That's just, it, it's so obvious, the goal. And here, she's taking those lyrics, and it's not, even every syllable is not followed Verbatim. For instance, just with that opening, you know, that E, it's either that, that first syllable is a vocalization that she's just imparting on her own. It's, it's her artistic liberty. Or it's, you know, sort of her own warped interpretation of being part of the full lyrics. Because when it finally reads, you know, when somebody loves, it's like that, it's like she's altered that first, that if, you know, that if somebody loves you into an E. So the if became an E, and that's a little bit odd, but it's interesting to see how, to see why she made that specific choice. And it's also amazing to see how labored every single stress is, and that's where I kind of start to see John's point. Every stress, it's, it's, it's not without traditional musicality. In fact, there's a, a more prominently known, you know, Billie Holiday tune, or at least she's one of the more uh, well-known singers of the tune that's coming up next, in which I kind of heard her inflection wrapped up in the word somebody, just the syllable body. So there's a vibrato in there, it's actually kind of glottal. It almost feels like that was a, a, a prime influence. But everything else is so breathy until, of course, the key lyric, which for the original smacks of being the hook, despite that it's still in the verse technically, whatever, the lyric, the title lyric is all the way. And with, you know, all blue eyes singing it, you just feel wrapped up tight. But here for Diamanda, it is significantly more tortured. It is all the way, it's getting contorted, it's wavering, it's waning, it's like she's tuning that one note, like she's an instrument trying to find the spot, and she deteriorates at the very, very end, uh, the end of the end, when, when she like, uh, like she's been stabbed in slow motion, and that's what I found particularly alluring about this track. But certain aspects of it, especially with her vocal play, draw me back out of it and make me unable to take it truly mature and seriously. A line later on where she hits the word real. That's how deep it goes if it's real, real. And she gets yeah. serious and she just almost says it, real, real. It's very but intense in that spot, yeah. It feels like a tantrum. It doesn't feel like a mature thing to do. It feels like just a slamming on the keyboard, which it also occurs here. It, it Frustration, sure, showing through and everything like that. I agree. But this doesn't feel like a adult way of dealing with it. It feels like a childish way. I agree. And it feels like she's <laughs> regressing. But because of that, I cannot look at it really as a very mature piece. It feels like a little bit too childish. And I'll give her credit that I feel like this 50-odd, 60-odd-year-old woman is making me regress a little bit to talking down to a child and going, calm down. Just calm down a little bit. You're blowing this out of proportion. <laughs> that That's cool. That I really enjoyed. But that's, at that's the same like you're time, doing my job for me. <laughs> at the same time, it, it, it just, to me, reeks of impulse as opposed to artistic choices. 
Um, and but, that's, but I, think I would all, argue that, that is in, inherent in everything that you had just said. And said well, but by the way, I might add, because all of that stuff is 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 a success to me. That's an artistic success. I mean, I knew in the beginning that this was going to be, well, or at least within that first minute, that this was going to be a upending of the original tune. In which case, no, it's not going to be as emotionally mature. This is when those words fail you. This is the end result. You know, when you've listened to the tune and it, well, it wasn't Frank Sinatra singing and no matter who sang it to you and no matter what the words were, it didn't work. It was a failure. It was almost like an artistic failure from the words perspective and I feel like this is a con- this is conveying that. And that to me is just really fascinating. I never really catch on those layers to most pieces of music. Yeah, I would say that my experience with this first track as a whole is more enticing and curiosity along with the unnervingness that I experienced. I don't know that I loved it and like enjoyed it in the sense of it's something I would listen to over and over again like a pop song. I think it's more I'm intrigued by it. And a lot of what John said I will also bridge with because I felt there was a sense of schizophrenia to this track, but if you look at through the lens John is looking at it, a lot of actions that an adult or mature human would take yeah, it's, with a <laughs> child doing it, it's not schizophrenic, it's just being a child and being immature and being off the wall and not making sense and talking to yourself and doing bizarre things. And so I think that was really interesting to me and it's an interesting take on Precisely. it. Precisely. But that impulse control or lack thereof is, for me, something that's drawing me out of it. Yeah, and I disagree. It just pulls me in more because that's, I want to know more. But that's, that's I think, we we agree that it's doing the exact same thing in some ways. Yeah. We're just looking at it from the point of view. I'm finding it to be a negative. This, right. This inability to, to I... I don't know. I don't know what she's failing to do to for this to, to get me connected to it. Let's move through a little bit more lyrics. But also, uh, before we go too far in, let's kind of come back to the piano and talk about the piano as an accompaniment. Because this is kind of interesting. I like how thin and trotting it becomes when she does start singing. Because, of course, you know, in the first minute, it's dominant. It's yeah. the only thing you have. But now, the vocals piano, kind of push forward. Vocals push forward. Uh, not, And, of course, she's singing so slowly, too. Yeah. But the piano is sometimes even s- slower than that. It's it's thin and trotting, but occasionally irrepressible. Like, yeah. it bursts <laughs> forward like those it did. thuds. Yeah, those thuds, like right. And also some interesting post-production effects that were going on as well. I heard them between phrases, and I, I think it was like a phasing sound. You right. particularly hear them between separate phrases. So, like, she'll say one thing, again, it takes her forever to say it, to get out the whole entire phrase, and then you hear those phases going in between. It's an interesting effect that I, I can only assume that had to have been added in post-production. I can't imagine that would have come from a live performance, uh, or unless just some liberties have been taken on the final the raw cut of the live performance. But, uh, yeah, again, it's impossible to know. I just know that that kind of added a little bit to the unease mm-hmm. because it was a little bit of a, a an extremely odd third aspect. But let's push further ahead with the tune here. It, it, it's a little bit difficult, of course, to break this up by section, even though you do have the verse and choruses, the same verse and choruses that are there in the original tune. You know, it, it almost it is like a continuous ex- experience. Yeah. And that is... is why, you know, we can't break this down in the, in the traditional fashion. It's difficult, too, unless you isolate the moments. And I, I do really like to talk about the moments, so I'm just going to rattle off a couple of bullet marks that I really, really like on this track. For instance, 
you know, no later than the, just the third line here when she says, happy, happy to be near you. She holds up that, but then she breaks it up. She breaks it down to these boxier components like she's being digitally torn apart. I love that moment. I also love the second time she says, all the way, but this time a little bit more closed in. Like she's receded a little bit from... Uh, the kind of outlandishness that was there the first time. But see, that gives her the unexpected capacity to shock you more when she starts in on the chorus. And the chorus is, is actually taller than the tallest tree. And yet, you know, from her tune, you barely even know that you're in the chorus here because she makes no attempt to distinguish the, sec the sections musically, like I just said. At least not at first. It's, it's very, very subtle. By the time you get to deeper than the deep blue sea, uh, and then that's how deep it goes if it's real. That's that moment John brought up before. You know, but late in the course here, it, it's it's completely closed in again. She really milks the word through, uh, from through the good or lean years, and all the in-between years come what may. So heavy vibrato here until that last line come what may. And that's another chance for that phasing oscillation, more dramatic this time. And the, the accumulation of these effects start to give you the sense that yes, a, a chorus has taken place, but it's very, very subtle. You pick up on it in multiple listens that this is her idea of what a chorus is. Um, also, really no enunciation to speak of in the beginning of the bridge until all of a sudden, Total enunciation, anger in each word. The bridge, who knows where the road will lead us, only a fool would say, but if you'll let me love you, it's for sure I'm going to love you all the way, all the way. And then the final stretch there, oh my god, the final all the way, she just, she says all. She repeats all, louder, but never screams it. That's yeah. part of the vocal training that, you know, she described in the beginning. It, it, it can be powerful and project without the need necessarily to show stress. It's just so strange to feel like, like she's not changing, but the room is changing. You know, in, in my headphones in this case, it's growing, it's growing bigger and bigger, like a telephoto lens, all, all, all the way. So, yeah, it was really fascinating to me how she's translated warmth into despair or perhaps even desperation because of course read another way that can be a fairly clingy line when you think about it you know uh when you need uh it's it's no good unless they love you all the way it, it like that can be a little bit scary and so i almost feel like she was drawing from that but just changing the meaning a meaning that was even there in the original lyrics it's no good unless they love me all the way it, it's it's sweet, but, you know, society has a fine line with that stuff. We do tend to demonize the too much of a good thing aspect. Yeah, I think this whole song for me, um, to kind of summate how how I'm feeling with it at this point, is it's all about the theatricality and the performance for me. I'm intrigued by that. The actual content itself, I am engaging with it in a manner that I expected to. Yeah. Avant-garde stuff either unnerves me, puts me off, makes me curious, and that's, I'm going through all of those motions here. But for sure, the performative aspect, and it's clear she's a performer from the pretty much the earliest points of this track, that's what really has me hooked. And when we move on to track two, You Don't Know What Love Is, we get more of that, but we're kind of eased into it this time. The, the last track, there was a lot of Southern kind of, and we're off. Whereas this, the low melodic run of the piano keys requires focus and sounds pretty, at least very early on in the first few seconds, 
fairly straightforward. A little more traditional, yeah. absolutely. So let's let's cover this particular track. Um, you Don't Know What Love Is was written by Don Ray and Jean DePaul. Mm -hmm. uh, also for a film, believe it or not, it was written for the Abbott and Costello picture, Keep Em Flying, 1941, <laughs> originally sung by Carol Bruce. Uh, but guess what? It never made it into the film. It actually was cut. They deleted it for some reason, and then later it was recorded by any number of recording artists, from Elda Fitzgerald to Billie Holiday, and that's the one that I I always knew. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this song, at least very early on, pulls the wool over my eyes of going, oh, we're getting a fairly regular melodic piano run here to just engage with. But it doesn't last long. Still immensely dark. Yes. You know, but, oh, for sure. And quiet, too. Yeah, and probably still on the border of expressionism, but right. with closer ties to tr to romantic tradition. Uh-huh. And, uh, yeah, most of these chords, you know, they're right out of the uh, Great American Songbook. But the difference, I think here is the muddiness of the lower register of the piano in this case and of course the random other sporadic things happening but it, it was a pretty incredibly moving exposition whereas the first minute of track one was yeah where you going with this yeah. track two is um, all right I, I am expecting a more more of a traditional tune i wasn't quite expecting it only because the lower register gives a lie to what the i called it the more Victorian love, like the more refined, quote-unquote, proper, the one where everything's buttoned up and everybody's stressed to the nines, but it has that sort of a feel, what you would expect in maybe a period piece or something like that. Definitely what I expect on the more generic BBC type mm -hmm. of pieces. Yeah. But having that low register be a little bit against the flow... I knew we weren't going to get something, quote, normal. I knew we weren't going to get something expected because not even with the first piece, the second one, you just you just can't get it. Not if you're already showing signs of, I, I want to say, maybe a little bit of decay in the piece itself, in the music itself, from the first few seconds. Well, the difference, I think, is the choice of tune. Because, of course, in this case, you know, there's there's more of an active attempt to serve the original here, uh, but the original was always a fairly depressing tune, you know, right. or at least, I'm, again, I'm just pulling from what I know, and that is the Billy Holiday version. And it is very longing, and it almost feels more like what, she, uh, to a lesser extent, what she was trying to do in track one. It feels like that's what Billy Holiday was trying to do back in the 50s, mm -hmm. you know? It feels... Like that was the focus at the time, and of course it was through the lens of the time, which yes has a has more of a safe approach. But there are some inflections that you know Billy Holiday does in that tune that are that was very bizarre. No one had ever sung like that at the time. She was she was ahead of her time. Some could even call her singing style, if not the songwriting style, avant garde. Right. So yeah, I think that made it e made it easier. That made it, it's not as big of a leap. But don't get me wrong, it's still breathier here, it's still eerier, and it's it's really only in the vibrato itself that I hear the similarity to yeah. Billie Holiday. Well, and I would also say, this is the first track on the album, albeit, well, it's actually the second track. Ah, waka waka. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> I'm <guess>. really sorry. <laughs> um, but in the second track, we're already getting, I'm already getting more of a sense of how this artist likes to move in and out of other things. There's a more clear noir and cabaret almost feel to this track than the previous track. I wasn't really trying to place or genreify it at all. And we always, sometimes 
overdo that. Whereas I had no intent to do that in the first track. I was content to kind of exist where it was. Here, I immediately went, oh, I could see this in like a smoky bar in, in a noir film. Um, of course, it gets bizarre at points, but still, I at least got a sense of setting for this track. I didn't before. Yeah. That, I think that's because of the mixing here is actually a lot different from the first track. Yeah. Her vocals are much more receded. They're much less of a forefront piece when she's uh, being a little more melodic. Um, yeah, she steps in with the higher register and likes to pierce. I love the siren-esque kind of a feel we get going. And I mean specifically like an ambulance siren where she she really is trying to hit a piercing note. Almost a mechanical howl. But she only steps forward for that to hit that note. And then she does still recede back to allow not really the piano because the piano doesn't quite step up to take a forefront. So in in many ways, there really isn't a... A front of this stage. It's a lot of background ideas. Uh, the piano work, especially with that double tap kind of a of a thing, the dun dun, yeah. dun dun. It's it's background. Everything feels so background until I, she pierces forward. I, I think that's. Cover. I just want before you step in, Steve. I just want to say that I think that's what strengthens my setting feel is that nothing does feel upfront. It feels like you're immersed in it and it's just kind of around you in the background. Right. Well. I, I need to cover just two things that have been said, and some of them are a little bit past now. One of them is just, the, you did mention, Matt, that the setting had changed for you, and that is where I might disagree. That okay. the, I think, remember I said in the very beginning of the first track that I did feel the setting very strongly there, similar to exactly what you described, the right. kind of smoky nightclub there. It's just that the first track will get you kicked out. But <laughs> th- this track, you know, there's, there's, the there's, a, there's a threshold for that. Now, the second thing is what John brought up, which is where this track kind of snared me. And that is that very long, very slow opening melody. And I... Oh, this melody was stuck in my head for days. And it it's actually a very complex melody to keep in your head. And I was really fascinated by the fact that she was able to do that to me. It's, again, a very slow, draining melody, like, like pulling teeth. But that had a profound musical effect on me in this case. Around, like... A minute and 22 seconds, there's like a two or three second pause in the phrase that was really incredible. And it was an outstanding use of silence. Not done nearly enough in the world, in the world of music. But maybe I should be thankful so that this moment felt as impactful as it was. The thing is, the pause um, actually matches the pace of the track. Because the track is so slow, then what you have is it almost feels like a natural musical breath mark when you have that pause and then she continues you don't know what you know but it's each syllable you know has the individual vibrations she's closing in and she's opening up and she's closing in opening up you don't know what love is until you know the meaning of a kiss you until you've loved a love something you've had to lose see this is where it breaks down the lyrics do not follow from like word to word to word if you're looking at the originals. She completely guts this. And sure, I hear the cabaret in here, but then when you look at that breakdown of the the lyrics, that's the avant-garde influence. It's just a different focus in this particular case. You had more of a uh, an actual, believe it or not, an actual following of the lyrics almost precisely in track one, you know? But here, she doesn't stick with that, and I find that to be kind of interesting. And also, this is the track I... I was intrigued, and it piqued my interest, her vocals, in the first track. This track is where she 
really impresses me. The control, the elongation, the vibrations. Like, I mean, me and Steve talk at length. I think all three of us at one point or another talked at length about how much we love a good vibrato. But here, she's doing stuff beyond (coughs) what I could have imagined a voice can do in moments. I didn't even expect that, like, one of that prolonged vibrato would take on such life within a single syllable, Uh you know? And very often you don't see it coming. It is, like, hands down, probably some of the most impressive vocal work I've heard on this podcast. Not in general. I can think I can name half a dozen better people. Um, but it's it's a tough crowd to actually try to break into because this yeah. is the, the, just the, the ability, her the, the amount of air she can hold in her chest for some of these lengths that she's going to is impressive by itself. Well, the plus side is she's in kind of a unique corner of the world where I don't think, I think she would probably shy away from the mainstream success. She's a very interesting personality. She's not seeking the kind, like, if if she has the same chops as you would see in other areas, you know, and people aren't necessarily noticing her for the fact that she's in this oddball genre, I think she's cool by that. But... And here's another but. This is a different but. Because while I felt like we've definitely matured here, mostly because I'm starting to identify with the individual here a little bit more, it feels like maybe now there actually is background to emoting here instead of that first tantrum I felt in the first track. Uh, I felt myself wandering a bit Primarily because I don't think the piano is doing much for me. And with only two major elements going on, I I need something to focus on when you have those extremely long but background pitches. Not the piercing ones, not the sirens that actually are hitting me, but the background is that she pulls out. I, I feel myself wandering a little bit because of how just decaying it is. Well, since you brought the piano, it's funny to bring that up because I was actually just looking at that as the very next thing I was going to bring up in my notes and I was wondering why that was such a a kind of a, a curt comment on the piano was that it really just marches along sometimes waiting for her to have her moment. Um, which is, yeah, not saying very much for what it's doing, but it does say that she's the focus here, and I, I feel like there was a little more of an equal ground in track one that may have been the only problem here, is that she has stolen the show away yeah. from the piano. When, again, she's playing the piano, I think I think these are, like, she's singing while she's playing. I don't think these are two separate tracks, but whatever, the effect is you still have two things to focus on. Well, and I would disagree, though, that it was a problem for me, only because that effect allowed me to engage in a more voyeuristic relationship with this art. Mm. You know, I felt in that smoky room, I felt like I was at a cabaret, and considering the performative nature of this, I'm okay with that. That distance, that... Um, not really focusing on a specific thing and kind of getting lost in the haze added to the immersive nature of this track. Well, it's true, like I said in the beginning, how the chords that the piano choose, mm-hmm. you know, something like right out of the Great American Songbook. Sure. Like when you kind of expect what the next chord is going to be, it it is... It, yeah, I guess it does kind of the open the door. It kind of fall into it. Yeah. yeah, it opens the door for a little bit of voyeurism, if that's what you, if that's how you want to approach this track. And yeah, I feel it is, it, it's creepy enough in the face of it that frankly you do feel like you're witnessing something you shouldn't be witnessing. Uh-huh. Um, uh, I, I, I've kind of. You you disagree on the creepy factor. Yeah, and that's that's one thing that. that I that's going to be a major theme. I'm really just seeing somebody hurt by love. And it is a painful hurt. This feels like the first true hurt when love was a capital L. And 
I appreciate it for that, but I'm not seeing a lot of fear or creep or any of those emotions. I'm still just seeing sad and angry. Well, then let me talk about the final stretch of this track here, because after, you know, she kind of goes into some really extremely Billie Holiday stuff, um, but God, does she make it her own? It's the lyrics, you don't know how lips hurt until you've kissed and had to pay the cost, until you've flipped your heart and you have lost. You don't know what love is. Do you know how lost I've been at the thought of reminiscing? and how lips that taste of tears lose their taste for kissing. Again, you don't hear all of this. You don't hear it all verbatim. But I do really love how this goes cleanly into some parts that, for me, are unquestionably creepy. When she goes into, you don't know how hearts burn. You know, she she turns that note so far down, she bends it so far down, again, like she was stabbed in an alley or something like that. It's just how, how uh, visceral this was for me. And she continues, for love that cannot live yet never dies. There's no enunciation on that word dies. There's an R there that she invents, that she just invents and puts into dies, but it just comes out of nowhere. Um, and then until you faced each dawn with sleepless eyes and sleep, she holds that for an eternity with these random vibratos sleepless eyes and then you don't know what love is and the wailing at the end of this track it's i i i love the final moments those little those little escape tones as she works her way up to that extreme you know uh climax and then those escapes downwards in this sh strange you know scale work this this weird back and forth thing she just works her way down the scale back to home and to me that made it extremely haunting because it it is it is broken. It's coming from like a broken soul that almost feels too dramatic for a studio album, which is why, of course, again, this stuff was probably recorded and there was an audience there and maybe we just are not hearing the applause. We only hear the applause once in this album, but that's the way I hear it. It's still very interesting, though, considering that I'm not exposed to that too much <coughs> on a studio album. I can understand if it's uh, not everyone's cup of tea, but this is a track that connects two different worlds of musicianship, and that's where I think it's it has stunning success for me. It brings together that old world jazz with this like fringe art that really she there's no one else to compare her to. And it's I think more successful in this track than it was in track one. I kind of like how she shocked you but this track she pulls you somewhere in the netherworld and I think this is one of those things that could bring people over the line. I'm inclined to agree yeah, right. for sure. That's kind of more or less how I engaged with it as well. Alright let's move on to track three. The thrill is gone. All right, this is an interesting story on this one because, well, everything that you, you find about this track desperately wants it to be traceable to a B.B. King song from 1969. But there really is no similarity to it except for the name. Apparently, B.B. Uh, King borrowed the name and changed everything else about the song so that the standard actually goes back to, like, 1931. Broad Broadway songwriters Lou Brown and Ray Henderson wrote it for the Broadway Review, George White's Scandals. Never heard of it myself. And then the earliest version that you could find of it is by Rudy Valley. But there were later covers by Sarah Vaughn and Chet Baker. So Just to name yeah, a few. Just to name a few, as is the case with many of these tunes. So, yeah, that's what you should be looking toward. Disregard all of the B.B. King lyrics. So the introduction to this track feels brighter than any of the other two tracks. 
at any moment. There's a sense of almost a sparkly tone to the way the piano is delivered here, which is interesting to me because it seems so juxtaposed to anything else we've heard so far. Not once the lower register steps sure, in. Sure, of course, but I'm literally Not... just talking about those first moments. But you got to remember, exposition for these pieces tends to be you err on the side of the long. <laughs> That's true. So the first moments... Okay, I will agree, but I really, I, you can't take anything at the first few moments. Mm-hmm. Other pieces we've done for other musicians, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. you could take the first few moments. No, no. Because if, if you try, you're going to miss something. You have to try to sink in 30 seconds at a time with a lot of these pieces. That is true. And, and the only thing I will sort of isolate that is kind of specific is maybe the, the, the two sides of this first 30 seconds that you do get. Because it's an, it's an interesting intro because it exists in the line between being truly haunting and also being kind of a lullaby. Like, there's some chords here, actually, uh, only eight seconds in, that are enchanting. Like, like Beauty and the Beast manner of enchanting. Like, you're about to get an old, an age-old t- tale told to you. But then other times, it's right back in the noirish back alley worrisome stuff. So, that, I think that maybe that's the contrast here. But both of those two things e- com- equally comprise the first 30 seconds of material. And you just have to, yeah, take them in at once and stop trying to isolate each and every one. But it's hard to not have expectations. But you can actually start isolating different aspects of this track. The, the, the low and the high register do separate from one another. And only the low register really sticks around throughout. The the bright, the happy, the 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 sing songy lullaby, just little bursts of joy are just that. They they burst, they show up, mm-hmm. and they complement her vocals as we go along. They complement the the area we're in, but because they're so brief, I was actually very disappointed after the first minute or so with this track because the piano did so much. Like for me, it really did a lot more than than anything in the previous two pieces. So to not keep propagating that felt like I was I was I was just getting a taste of something better. Well, it was propagating itself in other ways. Let's I guess let's get to the lyrics here because by the time you have the opening the thrill is gone, right? But it's again the long she loves those prolonged opening syllables in this case. The thrill is gone and that bends down. The thrill is She's, she's again, distorting the word itself. And you do have, in this case, the stalking single piano line in the background. And I thought that was a fairly nice through line in this case. I was kind of satisfied with the blend between the two because of how it just kind of jumps around, sometimes just one note at a time, also very, very thin. So both elements are extremely thin, but yet you have a sense of a prolonged... Uh, almost like as if there were an orchestra there and there was just a constant, you know, bowed drone. That's the... It's amazing that she accomplishes that between her vocals and the uh, short attack nature of a piano. Yeah, and this is the first time where how I'm engaging with the material has shifted a bit because where in previous tracks I either felt haunted or unnerved or invited or intrigued here, 
it was a true meeting of both. I felt both haunted and inviting by her vocals at the same time. Sort of like a siren song, almost, if we're talking about it. Like, you were referring to a different kind of siren in the previous track. Here, I'm really curious, but still cautious at the same time. More Odysseus as opposed to Ambulance. Right. Uh, maybe, but for me, it sounded drunk. I think that it, no dead on dead on yeah. I, I that was actually but that doesn't take away from it for but me. for me because it sounded drunk and the the brief little burst of the piano became like that that kind of hiccup and giggle exactly that that that, that to me I I became just an observer hey for once we were <laughs> we were experiencing yeah. the same thing when we were listening because yeah I, I I think that this was actually a concerted attempt. Not just like that's what we're hearing and it's an accident. I think this was actually a concerted attempt to sound inebriated or or incapacitated but as she's singing these lyrics. Maybe I should just read a little bit ahead so you get the overall context. The thrill is gone. The thrill is gone. I can see it in your eyes. I can hear it in your sighs. Feel your touch and realize the thrill is gone. But for me, haunting doesn't quite come to that level. I mean, when I think drunk, I think more of muddying realistic experiences haunting always felt like it was hiding something here there's too much out in the open there's too much just stream of consciousness stream of slurring consciousness that that keeps it from becoming a, a a hidden agenda or a hidden darkness to allow that fear to show up it's i'm being too much of an observer i guess and not really able to put myself in the empathetic point of view here, I, I'm sympathizing. I, I feel that longing and I feel that sadness of the thrill being gone. But I'm, I'm watching someone being self-destructive and not really participating. Uh, oh, so many things to say. First of all, uh, I'll be the first to volunteer the fact that we are overusing the word haunting. Haunting is not an accurate description of this. There is no monster. If anything, the only monster here is just... Maybe her and her own, uh, her own inner demons. You know that that I feel that when she, for instance, uh, turns that last um, the second time she says the thrill is gone. It almost sounds like she's she's going thong like she and she put a, a th there that doesn't really exist, but she put one in. She's starting to sound a little bit like Milton here, and sometimes that can be a little comical for you know. But Milton obviously Office Space. I don't know who's seen Office Space. Well, I should hope it. everybody at this table has. Yes, well, kind of a requirement for being on this podcast. Well, it's, it's yeah, yeah, it's, that's it's, that's it's, definitely yeah, yeah, a little bit um, <laughs> somehow. But, but no, anyway. but you know what? Uh, speaking to that a bit, I mean, Milton even towards the end of the movie is a little bit scary when he's really starting oh, yeah. to lose it. Yeah, absolutely. And so, well, your fun-loving character just just you know kind unhinged. of uh, unhinged and, and could have caused some serious damage. But I will agree with John on one thing that I am to to a degree an observer. I never really feel like I'm in this the singer the character's shoes. I often feel I'm watching something unfold and that lends to the theatrical nature of everything. But I think the big divide between the two of us is my sympathy versus your empathy. I'm yeah. not empathizing with the character as of yet. Uh, and I'm hoping to do so before the end of the album, but I I understand and I feel bad for the situations that may have put this person here, but without without something to draw me in, I'm not I'm not able to really empathize yet. See, this ah, this is I was still running off the high of the last track, and I think this track really 
pulled me in for that reason. Um, and I know that's a little bit of a fallacy. You know, you could, you could rely on past things. But I know this track doesn't have the same crossover. Mm-hmm. It's not the same crossover appeal. In many ways, it's much more like track one. But I already had a track one, and that's not. And now I'm used to it. Now I know where she can go. I thought it was perfectly natural that she went right back there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing I was going to say is that in terms of my overall take on this track, it's so difficult for me to have overall takes because of the fact that I'm so moment-oriented in her music. I like choices that she makes, specific musical choices. Like when she says, I can hear it in your size, she completely turns that, she changes the syllable there. I like the way she contorts these things. They, they sound unnatural and almost inhuman, and yet, of course, you feel the sense that this is a very... This is a human being going yeah. through all of this crap, um, whatever that crap is. Well, at least if it's just, if you take the from lyrics, the thrill is gone. All right, it's the end of a relationship. That's what the original was. Um, to continue from where I stopped reading, even a couple lines before that, which I already read, I can hear it in your size, feel your touch. Now, I really adore the way the piano over this vocal drone at this moment just slowly fills out that, I think it was an F-sharp minor 7 chord, but just one pitch at a time, widely voiced. She continues, feel your touch and realize the thrill is gone. The nights are cold, for love is old. Love was grand when love was new. Birds were singing, skies were new. She just says, skies. <laughs> she didn't even say skies. Now it don't appeal to you. And here you hear echoes off into the distance. The thrill, this, this growl here, this demon-esque growl is gone. This is the end, so I pretend and let it linger on. The thrill is gone. You know, the lyrics are written back in 1931, and already right there, I can hear the pain, right? But now I'm feeling the pain. And I do want to start this off with, with the uh, the disclaimer that I happen to really love the original 1931 Rudy Valley version. I hadn't heard that until I listened to this album. Then I sought out the playlist. I wanted to find the most original version of this track, and I listened to the 1931 version. And I love how the first half of the track is all instrumental. And then Rudy Valley comes in with that old, you know, kind of 1920s sound. But it, 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 it works. It works somehow in every single version. I just like the fact that this is a little bit more real for the sake of there being a truly unhinged reaction that someone doesn't have the reservation to go back and write a tune but rather to just emote and to me that's that's a success well and i would say i think also what lends to my engagement with this track is the sheer density of vocal exaggeration in this track because it's by far the most we've gotten so far she's so all over the place and doing such bizarre things that seem like odd choices um, not seem like they are odd choices. It definitely changed how I engaged with her work. And I wouldn't say it's a bad thing. I just say it's different. And I kind of like that about this work so far that I'm constantly changing up how I choose to engage with it because she's throwing so many things at me at once. And I'm going to preface my final comment about this. Or my final two comments. I have two more comments. Well, I have one more thing to say about the very end of this track. And that's one of my two, but we're going to get to that in just a moment. Um, That my next two comments are actually compliments, even though I'm going to be using very uh, unfortunate imagery. Um, There is a moment, and actually multiple moments, where she hits a high pitch and then sort of drains off the vocals. And it... It feels like visceral, guttural vomiting. 
and it is a real moment where that would be the probably the final line just, that, I, no, no, that no. I I had read straight the thrill is gone no, but that's right the before, line right before right that before. there is one moment um I'm going to explain what the final line means to me in just a moment that one it, it feels like it's it's that hiccup and purge and visceral is the only way I can explain it but it is it's not disgusting I want to put that out there it feels like a, an actual positive release, even though at this moment she feels so drunk vocally that coherence is out the window. Well, think about though when you're drunk and you throw up, it's actually a good thing. You're exactly. removing the poison. Exactly. Poison, finger quotes. No, 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 no. Yeah, Alcohol poison. is poison. That's it's fair. just poison people like, and I do too. Um, but it poison and that's, light. <laughs> uh, it's 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 a good thing. In this case, to have that that just that upchuck kind of reaction going mm-hmm. on right here to really get the venom out. But also look at the second to last line here. Well, you know, well, well, well wait, this wait, is wait, the wait, end. Wait, so wait, why final... pretend and let it linger on, right? And so she delivers is... you that lingering on and makes it sound exactly as torturous as it as it is implied that it had been in the music to this so, end a relationship. I gotta say, like this is the first time I I like throw up. I guess that I, it, it feels like a positive, just just boot and rally, but that final line, it all right. It feels like the last thought before drunken haze truly claims you for sleep. That's what it felt like to me, because I couldn't get away from the drunken imagery. So it felt like that last moment of a little bit of cohesion, a little bit of just consciousness. Before the sleep is forcefully injected upon you, this realization before you pass out. I, yeah. I, I do also want to um, repeat, considering we didn't actually mention this, that you know she repeats the final line, "The thrill is gone," very emphatically, and then it's it's all vocalizations from there on. She's like taking you back to the beginning in terms of the unnerving vocal terror, and then it's just a continuous stream of caterwauling, shrieks, and moans. But then she does repeat the chorus, so that actually wasn't the true end. I made a little error on that. But then the final thrill is gone when she gets to. It, I have lo- actually lost words on how to describe the sound, <laughs> but it's in stereo. <laughs> yeah, I would go listen at this point. Like there, we can only describe vocal warbling so much before it doesn't even make sense. She, she, but she's an experience. Like, I felt like I've had that drunken thought. I felt like oh, yeah. she actually personified that drunken thought, and it's the first time I really feel like I'm stepping into the character. It was the very end of the third track. Yeah. I, like the I very stepped brief moment. in. This was and my. Went, All right. You, you got me on something right there. I, I, um, it is the, one of the few moments on the album up to this point where I really identify. And I guess I don't really have anything negative to say. Like, I got it. For that briefest of, of, of moments, I got it. Yeah, I, I think this is actually the second favorite track of mine on this album right after track two. I still think that really is has high marks for... Well, here's the thing. I think that I really need tracks to have a stickability factor. Mm -hmm. And that is something that definitely conflicts often with the impulse that you'd expect in avant-garde music. But I do think if you find that common ground, then I'm there. And in this case, track two had that all the way. 
right? Still was true to its art, but you know, it just brought me in that little bit of common ground. And then track three, it's really close. This is really, really close. But I actually, again, I like the fact that I had already been given the ex the full extent of what she can do, or to some extent, the full extent of what she of what she could do. And then, you know, she recedes a little bit, goes forward a little bit. And so, you know, when she got the final piano chord at the end here, and then the applause, because this is the track that has the applause, that's mm -hmm. right. And um, yeah, I, I was thoroughly on board. I think uh, I, I started to understand understand the art at this point. It was definitely the most performative moment that I had had. And that takes us to track four, Round Midnight, which is a jazz standard by Thelonious Monk from around 1944, but was also prominently covered by Miles Davis. I think that's where a lot of people do know this tune. Um, and that's actually always where I thought the piece was from. So I'm learning a lot <laughs> in the yeah. course of going through this album. I happen to have always been a fan of the Thelonious Monk version, personally. Well, well, well cultured Matt. Yeah. <laughs> it happens once in a while. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going to go with Miles Davis on this one. <laughs> right. Well, though I actually might go with Diamanda on this one. Yeah. Oh. Th this version. So first of all, we get a reprieve from the vocals. This is an all piano track. All it's, piano track. We don't need a reprieve. Well, all right. That's a fair. Uh, all the arguments. Means I have. We don't need no. a reprieve. We get a. It is we get well, but it is a reprieve because we're we're not getting vocals here, and they had been thrust upon us. Well, in moments. it was a nice change of pace yeah. from the overall form because yes. at least so far now we have three tracks where there's been a little, just one note of predictability amidst all of this other things that we can't you know predict. You Whereas know. here, there's another unpredictable moment, which is. The, the vocals. Well, the fact that a minute in has been always been the marker in which vocals are introduced. So right. I started listening to this track really expecting that. Yeah. I thought that was definitely where it was going to go. But then, of course, I remembered, you know, we didn't really didn't really have that that thing. Like, I knew the original, and I didn't, I, I knew the melody, and mm -hmm. I'm like, a lot of people have done that where they add melodies later, where they add lyrics themselves, right? And I just kind of tuned that out, because I, I figured, all right, that's got to be what she's doing. Like with Take 5. Take yeah. 5 was the instrumental, right? And so they yeah. added lyrics later. Thought maybe they would have done the same thing here. But of course, if you're going to go by the melody, then the beginning of, is completely unrecognizable. Yeah. Um, it's a conversation of pounding. That's how I would <laughs> describe it. I'm close on that. It feels like the angry piano fingers just can't find the right melody to start off with. So it keeps venting that frustration towards us. Just almost like it's our fault that the melody won't form on this piano. There are stark shifts that come and go, and there's a rise and fall to this track that, you know, I don't think we got such a diversity on the piano and the other tracks. Maybe in moments, but for sure not straight through. Maybe because of the fact that it's, it's you have almost what sounds like a boogie-woogie bass line yeah. for a little bit, but it's kind of abandoned in favor of other things. This is not inherently new. We did get a little bit of this tease and withdraw in track one, <coughs> but as of like 30 seconds in... Then you get that direct nod to Thelonious Monk's style of piano playing, full swing for a moment, but, but not very yet, briefly. Very, very briefly, and not yet even the melody. Um, and, but what's really interesting is that following that, you get this grand, satisfying major chord, almost as if that were the end. Yeah. Right? But then one crash on the upper register sends that major chord off running and several more pounding bursts in the low end to continue. It, it's only starts and stops. It sounds like a frantic scuffle at some points just because of the, the dichotomy there. Yeah. And while nothing is quite succeeding, like nothing is coming to fruition, there is no... There's no failure. winner. Yeah. There's no loser here. There's yeah. no failure going on because you just have to try again. It's these little snippets of 
classical beauty showing up, but they keep getting marred. Reality keeps imposing in, so these idealized melodies that never come to fruition are still grounded in reality, and I love this combination of the two. It's sort of the idealized Eve taking that bite from the apple and taking reality into her mind. Like, that moment of the knowledge of good and evil shows up constantly, just to go, nope, 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 over and over again, just to screw up something that could have been perfect. And, of course, the first moment where I think that's done to the original tune is a minute and 16 seconds. Mm -hmm. At least that's the first moment where we encounter the original theme, but as John just said, it is actively interrupted. There are only a few seconds at a time where you can hear some soothing jazz consonants, and then all of a sudden, bleh. Just bleh, mush. And, and that's pretty interesting. But considering, actually, I guess I maybe overselled it. You know, a minute and 16 isn't far from the minute mark in. It's just there's no vocals here. So really, we do get the, the melody beginning around the same time it has been for the last few tracks, except that in this case, you don't stick with it. No. And because it's the piano and it's not something so prominent as the vocals, it's not like a completely new element, you know, because it's all blended in with the piano, it kind of trips over itself and covers it up. Like it's just hiding away, you know, what they what it had just shown. You know, it upturns the dirt and then packs it in again. But what I really like is that the piano is shining here, and I enjoy the way the piano is shining. I mean, I'm a sucker for good piano work, and this is really interesting piano work. Good, bad is irrelevant. Interesting is what really hooks me here, Mm -hmm. and I love that dissonance, too. The fact that you do get a hint at that wonderful melody, and then it's just muddied up again. And we go through this just over and over and over again, but there is a moment, and I cannot pin it down, where it stops being two opposing forces for me, and it just blends together. I think that was the, the... Well... Maybe this is just because the word sounds like really what you want to use, but there is a technical term for this moment in which, of course, well, you're down to just same note, but different registers. I believe it was a unison, in which case a unison, you know, that's just the same term for same note, different registers, but it kind of sounds like what you're describing anyway, because, of course, it it is a a unifying consonant moment. It actually felt like a moment that was something more out of, like, Steve Reich or Aaron Copland, you know, very different styles, maybe just because of how wide open and inviting it felt. It was just a really interesting shift. I can't confirm that's the moment you're talking about. No, that is, you are describing, I think. It's it's because of all the, 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 the randomness that seems to be appearing right here, it's hard to really pin it down but it was right after that where i felt like the two forces actually joined together reality versus idealism Mm -hmm. just became real just became something that felt like like it was in existence something something more important than a palate cleanser although that it served the same purpose and then she works her back her way back to the main theme and some more classic voicing i would say that these two uh, um, opposing forces birthed a new, for, like parented uh, a, a new, a child piece that was independent of the two. It was its own thing. Yeah, Cre- but creation it was, in music. I mean, it really it was, feels that way. It was specifically because the off keys were still there. Yeah. The rumbles and the not quite perfect tempo was still there. But the melody felt like it had a resurgence. It felt like it 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 became something that was persistent and it does gain a little bit of persistence throughout the latter half of the piece but because there's still a little bit of chaos there's still a little bit of 
the cosmics in there just throwing a, you know a wrench in the machine it it came off to me as something that really felt grounded in reality that felt like it was something that was beautiful but still had flaws it it was one of the more endearing pieces i've i've heard just in general because it it personified something that i feel like i can touch you know, As opposed to something I'm just experiencing, a, a moment or a story or something like that. This felt like a person's whose hands I can shake. You know, it's easy to, I think, for us to say, like, this accomplished its goals. It was something new for us simply because of the fact it was an instrumental and it didn't have vocals. So, of course, it accomplishes something new on that end. But I think the real success story here is the fact that, you know, when you consider her particular <laughs> brand of avant-garde, Styles. A lot of it is definitely hinged in her vocals. Mm -hmm. And so it does beg the challenge as to, all right, can you accomplish that just in piano? You know, at least, for, at least yes. for me, being the, you know a new listener to her yeah. material, it was really, really nice to see in just one go. Um, that, that does thoroughly translate. She doesn't even really need her vocals to mm -hmm. sell the musical concept. It's very in line with the album. And that brings us to track five, Oh Death. Well, this is a... 10-minute-long monstrosity for something that was a rather straightforward little tune, a traditional American folk song written by Lloyd Chandler, uh, who was an Appalachian musician and preacher. And pr it was probably written somewhere in Appalachia in the 1920s. This is what I have read. And it's been recorded a lot, but probably, again, the most prominent recent version <laughs> that we will all know it from, from our pop culture leanings is Ralph Stanley's acapella version, which was used in the Coen Brothers' Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Um, and that is, yeah, like I said, all acapella. There's no music to speak of. And I, I don't know, again, I haven't heard the older, older versions. I didn't seek out. I, I guess just because Ralph Stanley's kind of just stole the show. I think it got a yeah. Grammy Award. I believe, um, that well, that specific sound, version. I believe that soundtrack won something. Yeah, and I, he, he won some award himself even yeah. just for that version off of that soundtrack. So yeah, that will probably be the one that people recognize from 2000, which is when the movie was released, onward. Um, but I don't know the original form. Again, it's it's really hard to tell with, like, Appalachian music. Sometimes it was just something very, very thin. Whether it was even ever really properly written down, I don't know. But there is the overall melody, and sometimes that's all you need. Now, her choice, her approach with this, is, for starters, to make it an all-out blues tune. And yeah. blues is luckily broad enough that... You know, even fringe blues, uh, or actually all of those little sub genres, none of that really matters. It's just blues. Yeah, and you it can kind, kind of all of, grows together. You can keep it that simple. Though I would actually say it seemed to have a little bit of an early rock lean. Oh, in that's it. blues. <laughs> yeah, it is blues. blues. It is blues. But I would, I, I would just put it a little bit more towards. A part Johnny of me Cash almost era. wanted to say it was going to go into another boogie-woogie thing like yeah. I said for the last track. Uh, it's really hard to say, but... The first vocals, though, the first vocals I thought was straight out of gospel. Well, because yes, also, yes, absolutely. I would agree, and I think that's what lent... Because I thought that this track in its early moments reminded me of Tina Turner. I think it's because of all of those mixes, because she classically did that constantly in the mix of her music. But I think also, once the vocals come in... They're these deep, drawn-out vocals. And it's it a mantra. dramatic. It's a mantra. Yeah. Oh, death. Oh, death. Right? Yeah. And that's how the song is supposed to begin. But, of course, she drags it out even longer than that. Oh, but, death. Yeah. yeah well, but, but it, for me, I, it felt like the 
opposite of oh happy day like i i i felt that well that's the thing i can see because it's a mantra you can see this easily done as if this were like the preface in you know the gospel choir right yeah. there in yeah. like a you know a, a in like a baptist church or something like that and you can you could feel like they're going to go on to the next thing but it's going to it's going to take a while you yeah. know and it does take a while and this is like this might end up being my least favorite track on the album because of death, the word that becomes like, it feels like a 10 minute word. At first, right before she actually goes into the verse itself, there's there's that final rendition of Oh Death to, to really, to finish up the mantra effect that we were going on. But it goes and it goes and it goes. And after the first few seconds, I'm I am enjoying it. I am in, enjoying this really long, profound way of saying death. But then it keeps going and going and going. Like it really does feel like it lasts well a, a, much longer than it needs to. I guess let's talk about artistic goals first. Um because oh death, you know, just the phrase itself Obviously, it's supposed to be a conversation with death. You're speaking, yeah. you're personifying death itself. So it's supposed to be sort of a lament or a plea um, in and of itself. You're you're intended, I think, to milk it a little bit because it's a cry out to, oh, death, oh, death. And, well, not to spoil the next line, but the next line is, won't you spare me over till another year? That's the... That's what's implied in you reaching out, oh, yeah. death, oh, death. You know, do you have to, do you have to get me so soon? And... I feel the pain in that. I, yeah. I, I'm a little more closer to John here in that maybe because this was so early, maybe the musical presentation was a little bit odd for me. But I, I do accept the, the focus. I, I understand the focus very, very well. Yeah, I, I do too. But I think for me, the vocals here, the deeper vocals are a lot duller than the more showy things she does. And that does come later, you know, she does bring her vocals higher, but she does always return in this song to that deeper sound. Well, it's funny because that's... I just don't really like it. Maybe It's actually interesting because that's in the same register in which, well, maybe not quite the same register, but she does have a three and a half octave range, remember? Right. And so when she goes down there, I think more back to the Ralph Stanley version. Yeah. And then I'm just like, eh, well, you might as well just... If, if, it's, if she's going to stay there, then I, I feel like I'd rather have his crooning in yeah. that moment right but yeah i probably am sticking around more for the other stuff but yeah it's, it's true that that can be a little bit hard to take by around three minutes in uh the the last sh you know shriek that john was talking about it's, it's pure shrieking i mean yeah. pitch wise we basically explore the gamut of the entire spectrum it makes it difficult to listen to on headphones i have yeah. big all-encompassing surround your ear headphones and there were moments where i had to turn it down or even pause it for a reprieve because they just drag and pierce yeah. and i get that's part of it especially from the performative nature but it became too much even for me now the piano does try to break it up a little bit yeah. in four minutes in with some smacking but that doesn't quite succeed in overtaking her yet because she's not done she finally gets out that next line won't you spare me over till another year and then finally finally at five minutes in and we're kind of thrusting through halfway through the song here but it's only here at five minutes that she works her way through the full verse and how does she do it Slowly at first, and then faster, and faster, and faster, and faster, always broken up by these little piano asides to kind of cool off the track a little bit and not show all her cards at once. Let's try to read this. 
Well, what is this that I can't see, with ice-cold hands taking hold of me? While well, I am death none can excel, I'll open the door to heaven or hell. Woe death, someone would pray, could you wait to call me another day? The children prayed, the preacher preached, time and mercy is out of your reach. I'll fix your feet so you can't walk, I'll lock your jaw so you can't talk. I'll close your eyes so you can't see, this very air, come and go with me. Death, I come to take the soul, leave the body and leave it cold. To drop the flesh up off the frame, dirt and worm both have a claim. Oh death, woe death, won't you spare me over till another year. Well, anyway, it, it continues, but just for starters here, because of the, even just apart from the speed increase, I noticed there's lots of rubato here, like lots of change in the pace at which, you know, she wants to, it's not a steady, like, incre incremental increase. There's a lot of, like, a little yeah. bit of a bounce to it. Very loose, very much how she wants to perform to it. I mean, it shouldn't be metronomic anyway. Yeah, I think also a big struggle, though, I have is right after this moment, once she starts to really kind of get ridiculous with her vocalizations yeah. around 6 minutes and 20 seconds she begins to howl like wolf howling but to a point of pitch that I could barely stand from like 6 minutes up to 8 minutes and 30 seconds that's constant that's two and a half minutes of just it's it's surreal her voice is like a tuning radio finding mostly static but occasionally something else like same occasionally something coherent and the first four minutes had turned me off enough that I was not really engaging oh, with no. the vocals afterwards. I was kind afterwards. of repulsed by those moments. The, the first four minutes turned me off there. Those last two and a half minutes before the finale just cemented it as, I'm not enjoying this. Sonically, yeah. I wasn't feeling disturbed or anything like that. No, it was, was just, just unpleasant. Yeah, I agree. So... I don't know. Like, this is the one where I really have to put a question mark next to it. Yeah, ev evoking unpleasant feelings and stuff like that, that's something I'd expect avant-garde to do. But to really make it physically unpleasant, to make my ears hurt, seems like you're... You're throwing the baby out with the bath wash. You're going a little bit too far in trying to be provocative towards your audience because it I can't enjoy something that's physically painful. Uh, it's very tricky because, you know, this whole avant-garde thing, once you open the door, you know, I, I you open it to basically everything. Um, and it's nice not to have a threshold, I think. <laughs> I think. The musician in me <laughs> obviously wants her to curb this a little bit um, because I do... I do like the focus, and I do like the goal. But yeah, it's not this this track. I'm not going to sell this as, as much of a pleasant experience as the others. Um, and also, pleasant is not the right word for the others. But the others, I really I, I liked what I was feeling at the end of the day. And maybe maybe at the end, this just didn't make me feel very much. It might be a taste issue. Maybe I'm just not as much of a blues and gospel focused person. You know, we've had a lot of blues and gospel albums, especially gospel albums, uh, a little bit earlier in the year. And I've noticed that a lot of those, maybe just because I'd heard so many of them back to back that, you know, there's no amount of, uh, of bizarreness that's going to really change my interpretations of that genre. I don't mean to, make, to be so, you know, black and white about that, but it, it's, it's just more of a challenge in this particular instance. And I'm being honest about where I'm coming from and my taste in music. See, I'd say I, for me, the taste stuff 
is less about that because it gets so far from that stuff at moments towards the middle to end of this. Well, the piano's holding it down. That's about a little it, bit, but, but it yeah. almost becomes unrecognizable at moments. For me, it's I think I just the taste issue with avant garde. I think I just pulled away from it. I think it just got so bizarre and ridiculous. And I don't use ridiculous as a derogatory term. It does become over the top and performative. I just pulled away. And I, I think it's because of my lack of experience with avant-garde and my lack of taste for it. And I think it just pulled me away. I'll fine-tune this just a little bit. I think that if you were to compare this with the track on this album that I love, or the two tracks album, two tracks that I really, really love, which are tracks two and three, um, and one to some extent as well, then I think when I, you know, some of those moments that I isolated, those bullet marks, you know, I know that I maybe sometimes bullet marks are antithetical to this kind of art, mm-hmm. but I really love those moments and feel they were concerted choices that even if they were born completely of improvisation, you know, that was a, just a beautiful moment that we can all just sit with and, yeah. and behold. This particular track feels like it's lacking that for me, but yeah. maybe it has that for others. It's hard to it's hard to make that leap when you consider the, like I said, caterwauling that is in this track. This is really more of an applicable term to this track than some of the others, just because yeah. this one truly goes all out. But let's just push forward a little bit more, because she does start racing through the verse as if she was like running out of time and has to squeeze this all in at the bare end of the track. And I'm I'm sorry, but at this point it was almost a comedy routine because <laughs> you know I, 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 I that's yeah. exa- literally what she's doing. She's going through all the vowels. Um, and there are versions, um, not Stanley's, that I do think uh, have something to this effect, kind of like a knee slapping approach to mm-hmm. this particular track. So I guess it's true to the to some originals in that aspect. But, you know, with the echoing by, like, 9 minutes and 30 seconds, it does start to get increasingly um, unsettling in more of the manner that she had done so earlier on the album. I'm not saying that it completely, like, you know, sold the track over for me this late in in a 10-minute-long track, but I do think that the end of this was where I had really wanted to be for its 10-minute duration. It's just you have to follow her on the motions that led her to that moment. It's It was just her take, and then it fades into the mist to applause, of course, because I believe this was a very old recording. Mm. Um, I I don't know that for sure, but it may have been something that she brought forward on this album because she thought it served the purpose of the narrative that the album was building. Don't know. Track six, Pardon Me, I've Got Someone to Kill, which was written by Johnny Paycheck sometime in the 1960s. I could not pin the original album. There was like a best of list of uh, or best of album sometime in the 90s of Johnny Paycheck's music. And Johnny Paycheck is a country artist. Really, really weird genre shift in that case. Yeah. Like, I, I heard the original. It, it is the most different. If you, like, if you're listening to a playlist, which I yeah. did create, you know, on Spotify just for the fun of it. I listened. Uh, I've created a, a playlist of some of my favorite versions of these original tunes. And it, it is the only oddball. It's a very nice playlist yeah. on the whole. It feels like all of these had a there was a concerted choice behind picking these tracks. And I'm not saying there wasn't. Actually, I do believe there is a reason. It's just genre-wise, this is definitely a little bit of maybe a a wink and a nod on her part to have changed up the the inspiration at the end. This is also, though, a big shift in her personal presentation of these pieces. Because while we still have a very blues feel, I feel like here she's approaching a level of coherence that wasn't even hinted at anywhere else on the album. I mean, it does seem like, seem like a straight delivery. I mean, her... Or as straight as something like 
avant-garde can get. Well, no, but I would say even beyond that. Her vocal delivery is akin to what we were talking about earlier with uh, the previous track, track 50, Death. You know, she starts in this deep voice place again. And actually, with the straight delivery of the instrumentation, the piano work backing it, I get a very Janis Joplin performative vibe. You know, vocally... They are very different, but I think stylistically there are similarities yeah, and, that I can't and, help but notice. And that's where I want to just distinguish, you know, the inspiration. In other words, if you listen to the original, that's the oddball. But in terms of this particular genre that she's turned it into, sure, it's it's much, you know, more straightforward than all the others. But it is consistent. This is still very gospel blues. So it, it blends pretty well from the previous track. Right. But I would say if you're going to take Janice, you're going to have to add in a healthy measure of Dory from Finding Nemo. I mean, it, it's when she's talking well and going back and forth, she's, it's, it's like she's trying to voice mod herself. It's clear cut and each syllable gets its own treatment. But yeah, it feels like she's voice modding herself. I mean, like, it feels... Exactly, in, in my opinion, exactly that. I feel, I felt more of that in the previous track. I feel like here there's more of a consistency. I mean, again, she does still do that a little, but more or less... It's funny, I have in my notes true to the original, but it's not. It's true to what I would expect the original would sound like if she was singing it. Only because, again, this is more coherent than any other track we've gotten so far. All right, it's coherent, but um, I do think, I think I established in the last track, it's still true here that I prefer her upper register. Uh-huh, like it's, I agree. it's just not that there's as much to me, uh, you know, to... to to grab hold of on in the lower register, but I and mean, also the the pr- piano here is a little bit predictable. As a result, I didn't you know get as much impact from the vocals. I think maybe the piano is one reason because uh, sometimes the piano can tow you along and make you uh, think or feel about the vocals differently than you would have had it just played differently. Uh, they've mostly been partners on this album, um, and in this case they're just both playing very straightforward. It's certainly the more digestible track on this album, and it's kind of. The song that I guess I can sort of sit back to and, you know, I can see where it's going. There are no particular twists and turns. Perhaps at four minutes and four seconds, there's a softer part, you know, by the time you tell the sheriff, it'll all be over. And that's like, even like she says it the second time, this is, it's more somber and more resolute. That is a change that occurred on this track, but it's one of very few. I will say emotionally, this track, though, is consistent with the record there's this sense of breaking here this moment where you've given in to the insanity i get a sense of a maniacal uh almost joker from the batman-esque character who takes glee in going to kill those who have wronged them and there's a sense of this here that makes sense to the whole narrative of this record though it may be kind of thin in moments. Yeah, it's basically there in the title, but why not? I'll read the lyrics just to see if we can connect the dots from what we've had. I know you will excuse me if I say goodnight. I've got a promise to fulfill. Thank you for listening to my troubles. Pardon me, I've got someone to kill. I warned him not to try and take her from me. He laughed and said, if you can, you know I will. So tonight, when they get home, I'll be waiting. Pardon me, I've got someone to kill. I know I'll surely die for what I'm about to do, but it don't matter, I'm a dead man anyhow. This gun will buy back the pride they took from me, and also end this life of mine that's worthless now. By the time you tell the sheriff, it'll all be over. He'll find me at at their big house on the hill. He'll find a note explaining why I killed us all. Now it's time to go. I've got someone to kill. And, you know, this is a scenario that's been played out in songs and movies and other places many a time of... A, a cheating uh, spouse, 
the man comes home, kills them both and himself out of anger, rage, and depression. It's also like 90% of country music. <laughs> well, well if you gonna... my point is, from a serious nature, the, the, I think the maniacalness comes from this fact of wrestling with and then quickly giving into, well, this is it. This is how it is. I'm just going to do it very calmly. There's a calmness to it. And, and that's what's really weird about you know this on the album, is that <clears throat> here she accomplishes all of the stuff that she's been accomplishing through her technique and her, her, her peculiar manner of vocalizations and the piano, the instrumentation itself has been doing this job of creating the character that here is only done by the lyrics themselves, yeah. done by existing lyrics from another artist, and she's just kind of relaying them, and she's putting all that other stuff to bed. Yeah. No crazy vocalizations, no craziness at all. And I think it is that artistic style that I still find really, really interesting. Not going to go back to this track. I'm not going to, like, this is not, this is not great listening for me. It, it, it's On its own, this is a little bit of a boring track. I'll just admit that. But on the album, I, I see how this was structured. And that's why I had to pick this album because of, despite all those, you know, the fact that it's a cover album, the fact that, you know, it meant that we were going to be tying together a, a, a narrative from stray things we, we often find lots of weird discrepancies in that because it's an artist just i want to make a cover album and i saw a lot of vision i think at the end of the day it's a very different kind of album it's not my usual fare but it it, it definitely opened my eyes to a lot of things i think i might as much as <laughs> i'm not super into it i think i'm probably going to be the only one defending this track because artistically for the story the presentation really does work. The presentation is is perfect for that moment of lucidity when the decision is made, when fate is chosen, when you, you're going to go get back your pride and your girl and your revenge. That's okay, you're not sane, but you're lucid. Yeah. You're at that moment where everything has clicked, the emotions are off. So, yeah, it should be comparatively plain, considering the tumultuous emotional aspects we've already went through. Well, and also I <laughs> Tracks would say... one through five, she could, have she could have declared insanity. Track six, it's first degree. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a that's great point. Great point. Really I like that, point. actually. But I think also that's key to the flow of this record. I mean, we, we often talk about... Like, this is what's curious to me. For an avant-garde record, it has a pretty clear and focused message and flow, which is so strange to me considering how we got there. It's a little bit of a cliche. It really is a little bit of a cliche, but very well turned upon its head. As much as I've been like a naysayer on so many different aspects of this album, the, the, the presentation fits a tried-and-true story in a very interesting way. Yeah, I, I'm inclined to agree. Um, all right, well, I'll start us off on our wrap-up um, and start by saying, in previous experience with avant-garde, which is limited, um, I tend to not... So here's the thing about me in music. I need to find some sense of enjoyment in it on sometimes a very superficial level of just being able to engage in a common way. Now, this album... I definitely, for the most part, don't engage in a common way. There's a, uh, a theatricality to it that's intriguing to me. There's a performative nature to the artist that's 
unlike anything I've heard before and probably will hear again. Um, she's been doing this for so long. But I, I want to liken it to something I said last week, my requiem for a dream theory. Um, this idea that you only need to engage in something that's truly hard to engage in once, and that's it because you take all that you need from it. Here it's a little different. With that movie, for me, the reason I always say that I can only watch it once is because it absolutely was so br br brutal to take on an emotional level that I can't watch it again. It just put me in such a dark place so instantly, no matter what else I was feeling, because that's what it's designed to do. It's a horribly painful movie, and it's meant to make you feel that way. This album engages with me in a similar way. Even though... I'm a observer for a lot of this record. I'm still the empathy I'm feeling. I'm in so much pain through the pain that she's experiencing that it makes me almost uncomfortable. You know, John always likes to bring up my case with the paper chase, though our reviewing style wasn't so concrete then. My connection and engagement in that uh, album sure was. Um, but that said, you know, on a very superficial, did I enjoy it? I, it's a complicated answer that eventually becomes no. Like, I don't know that I enjoyed it. But again, is the point to enjoy it? The point could just be to experience it, which in that case, well, I sure did. I definitely experienced it. And I, I Steve said something off the air, off air that really intrigued me as well. I feel like I would go see her. The only time I would engage in this again is to go see her live and perform this album from beginning to end because it would be a show. It would be an experience, and I think important theatrical experiences shape us in unique ways that listening to something on an album won't. Um, and so I think for that, it has a lot of power. You know, what can I say about the musical moments and the talent? I mean, she's clearly a skilled singer. I mean, I would say at least in moments, she's a very skilled pianist. Um, you know, I imagine she's skilled beyond what's displayed here, but there are a lot of repetitive moments in the background of the piano because the vocals are what are showcasing in 90% of this record. But at the end of the day, I'm not, I'm not enjoying it. And so, uh, and this is something that I find I... I have a struggle with a lot of avant-garde that I've encountered. I'm not sure how to interpret it. Sometimes I feel like it goes over my head. And so from the re recommendation side of it, the university, you know, something being completely universal, because, you know, for a five-star album, you want it to be wholly unique and interesting, but it's got to be relatable. People have to be able to engage with it. If they're put off by it or pushed away from it, you know, it complicates things. I can relate to it. I'm not going to go kill anybody, but I can relate to it. Well, yeah, and I, I think the problem <laughs> for me is that I... Well, but also, we, us being able to relate with it doesn't necessarily mean the masses can relate to it. Um, well, I don't know. Yeah, I, I rejected the, the notion that we're we're speaking on behalf of the masses. Otherwise, Fair you enough. know, the whole discussion that we had a couple weeks ago, you know, the, uh, the, the sort of... Um, commentary on criticism that we had at the end of Drunk, you know, well then, sure, we would be doing this just to promote album sales and be like, this will appeal to such and such crowd. Therefore, we promote it. Crash Chord's stamp of approval. Has that ever really been uh, a that's not component? Yeah, that's not why we do this. I think the pain point for me is that I struggle to engage with it. Masses be damned. I have moments of complete... Um, 
a visceral rejection from moments of this record. That said, I absolutely am still intrigued the whole time, even in those moments when I'm pushed away. So I think ultimately this lands at a 4.25 for me. I think to put it higher than that, it's just like John and John said this earlier, and I think I have to agree. Ultimately, it feels like it's missing something. Now, whether that missing piece is just something that's a disconnect for me personally and my own personal problem, I'm willing to acknowledge that. But I feel like there's definitely something missing that I can't quite pinpoint. But it's definitely approaching the upper echelon because it's one of the tightest narrative and themes we've had from a record that I have almost no clue what's going on most of the time. But yet I still get it. But don't get it. You know? It's, you know what? It's, it's probably the tightest theme and narrative we've had on a record that I flat out don't enjoy alongside <laughs> with you. It easily is. Like, I, aside from Round Midnight and moments here and there throughout the album, I, I as a whole, this, as, as far as the taste, is not me. Not even close to me. I mean, yeah, sure, blues shows up. Who doesn't like blues? It's hard to dislike blues. And if Steve says he doesn't like blues, well, nuts to him. <laughs> um, gospel. I I like gospel. I love the influence that is actually produced in so many other forms of music. And it's being paired with blues and Motown and all sorts of different instances with that. So I, I like those sort of parts. But when I have the reaction of it's it's physically harming me, that's when I have to say no. I have to just flat out say no. Something like Oh Death and the fact that volume control was an integral part to keep my ears from 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 being pained. That's not something I want to have to do when listening to music. There's obvious talent here. Just the fact that I'm so upset at how bad she makes her gorgeous voice sound at moments that's a talent that's just that's just amazing control again i'm going to go back to around midnight the the beauty she marred by making it feel real that's a talent the use of interjection especially on the lower register to compliment her voice to screw up her voice when she's just hitting a note she's not warbling or anything like that but that little dun just transforms it after that instance talent she's really goddamn good but i can sympathize with a lot of what this character goes through and this is going to be the major detractor the theme is there but the lack of maturity in the beginning that we do gain as we go along but really aside from my defense of pardon me I don't see anything that really grips me and, and shows me a character I actually want to interact with. I can view this. I can be the voyeur here. I can watch this story. But I don't feel like there's a whole lot of redeeming qualities that makes me want to empathize. Even my lack of empathy in other situations, not just on this album, but when I'm enjoying media... Yeah, okay, maybe I don't want to empathize with the guys in an action flick. But I can laugh or I can tear up or I can I can do those sort of things without being in their shoes. Here, it's sort of a and I know I might get a little bit of flack for it, it's that Seinfeld reaction. 
the people on Seinfeld are not good people. I don't want to watch those people. I don't want to enjoy their stories. I don't oh, want to partake I'm, in I'm anything. Seething. I know, I know, and seething. I know you love Seinfeld. But there's it nothing just feeds me. <laughs> there's nothing on Seinfeld I enjoy. Because the characters themselves don't have any redeeming qualities for me. They're not meant to in many ways. They're meant to be just not really all around good people. Not really bad people. They're not murderers. They're not going no, out of their way. Eh, that might have happened once or twice. It I know. Gets I've seen a, I've seen a couple of the, the a couple of the later seasons. Uh, they're they're not sociopaths, but they have sociopathic tendencies. They're not narcissists, but they have narcissistic tendencies. Like these are turn off things. They're New Yorkers. They see their hand in front of their face. That's it. But see, that's that's a, that's another thing. They're not New Yorkers. They're the caricatures of New Yorkers. Yeah. They're the caricatures of sociopaths. They're the caricatures of a lot of the bad of the world. And I see a lot of that in this album. So I don't want to associate with this character. And by extension, I don't want to associate with this album. I guess that is... Actually fulfilling avant-garde. So it accomplished exactly what it was going for. Can't fault it for that. I just don't know how to take it. So for all the negativity, it started at a four. Because skill level, it's hard to put this under a four. But because of my just gut reaction, I'm going to have to. And put it at a 3.75. Oh, I, I, I don't even know where to begin with the amount of bullet marks that you just brought up that you I know, need to refute. I, we, could talk about, we could talk about Seinfeld off air. It's going to be a little component, but let's start with this. The first thing that you brought up, I, I have never, you know, at any point in this podcast, um, I guess, tanked anything, and not that we're talking about tanking here, but I'm even just as a point of discussion, my ears hurt Ergo, you know, I will not be going back to this. I don't think that's true for me and music and never has been. I think a huge part of why I've been doing this is because, and, and this is a little bit personal. Um, you know, Matt started off his spiel by saying uh, that, you know, he does need to go back to some things that are a little bit of digestibility, at least a little bit of a hook, a little bit of something. Um, I'm not denying that that's, you know, uh, somewhere in, in my in my view of music, but I really have been craving new things recently. I think it is a huge part of what I've been looking for. I like to hear things that are completely fresh. It's really fascinating that she was able to do what she did on an album of covers, because there is room, I always feel, for drawing from influences, and this is a really creative use of drawing from influences that by no right should be together. Eh, some of them are a little intuitive, the jazz stuff, but yet together, it makes one hell of, a, of an album art, one hell of an album theme. And uh, it, it kind of brought me over to avant-garde a little bit. I don't know. Um, again, I should stop saying that as if she's like the uh, representative for all avant-garde musicians. She brought me over to her, and that's what's important. I think there are choices in track two and three are amazing. Tracks, track one is really, really good. Track four is, I think, amazing for its context in the album, the fact you have an instrumental. And then five or six do really kind of taper off somewhat steeply for me. But at least still theme-wise, they, they continue... The, 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 what she was trying to get at. 
let me just hop over to something else because this is really important. I need to bring up the Seinfeld thing, not to defend Seinfeld, this is not about Seinfeld, but just in the, the reason you brought it up, the analogy there. The fact that those people are, yeah, no, they're not, they're not likable from what we want to get morally out of uh, a sitcom, but they are characters. They are, they are characters, and I don't need my characters to be spitting models of perfection. Frankly, I don't even need them to be TV models of anything that needs to impart a moral to me directly. I like to see, and this is one of the reasons why I do love Seinfeld as a, as a show, and also, you know, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia and that ilk, Trailer Park Boys, kind of just despicable people, really, really at the bottom, trying to, to, to work their way within their universe, do something good or successful uh, that isn't on anyone else's thing. I really, really like this because of the fact that you interpret from that the moral just by seeing it, you're just like, this is horrible. No one should be like this in the real world. It's so over-the-top and cartoonish. And to me, that's kind of the way I see this album. There are parts that are cartoonish. There are parts where I'm even laughing at some of her choices and probably where she knew it was equally as ridiculous. But there are, through that, I'm just like, this is a tortured soul. We probably should not take anything so seriously, but it's so gratifying to see it in art that someone could take, you know, the end of a relationship or a certain moment uh, so seriously because... That's catharsis. You have catharsis in those specific moments. And I think that's absolutely brilliant. And musically, yes, it had me for the first four tracks. Musically, it tapers off, though, at five and six. But not because my ears hurt, more just because the choices in context, 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 did not, they did not uh, impart the same musical goal on me. And so that's just my feelings on those two tracks. But finally, when we get to talk about rating, I find it really interesting that for Matt, you know, for most of the episode, he was, I guess, all right, he, he's, he's pointing out what he likes. But then, you know, there's a lot of admissions there for his own tastes that make their way into uh, his final monologue. But then, of course, the rating is suddenly a lot higher than it, it, he made it sound. And that's, I just find that interesting, considering that, you know, we sort of changed our approach with our rating here just a little bit in, in terms of, you know, the person who brings on the album is usually the advocate. And I do advocate for this album very, very much so. I admit that it has a few little flaws for me musically, but, you know, based on the case that you were making there, you know, I, I almost expected you to be so much lower. And that's why this is just kind of strange for me because I'm not going to be at a 4.5. I'm going to be a little bit lower just because, you know, when you look at the overall, it's a six-track album, right? Six tracks. The last two are not really my cup of tea. I know that they're not my cup of tea. And I, that has to factor with me. And then the fact that the album only has a great artistic finale, doesn't have a great musical finale to me. But it, because of the art as a whole, and because of the stunning musical moments in the first four tracks, this to me is around the same as you, and yet we have almost two completely different arguments. I think this is a 4.25. It's an album that everyone should listen to, but I wouldn't put it in the upper echelon either because this is something for... Here's the thing that um, maybe was lost in my wrap-up. I... I already we already spoke in quite verbosely about what works with this record and why it works as a record. But when it comes to to me at the end of the day, I don't like it. 
<laughs> but I refuse to ignore the artistry and the brilliance in the construction of it. That's why it's so high. And if I didn't make that clear in my wrap-up, then that's on me, not the album. Well, I guess that's why we should refine how we rate, because it's just, you know, I I like this album. I like most of it, at least, in terms of percentage, because sometimes that's I mean, just what it has I to just, boil down. Should I drop it uh, 0.25 because I don't like it? I don't know. You don't have to ask me. <laughs> no, but I'm... You so, have to I, look inside yourself. But what, that's what I'm saying is I think the reason that I gave it a similar rating to you is because I'm acknowledging the same talent and greatness... I just personally don't enjoy it, and my personal feelings on the album are, my personal tastes on the album are almost irrelevant. Does the comparative digestibility of Without My Enemy, What Would I Do by Maiden Heights uh, equal the, for you, equal the artistic successes in this particular album? Yes. Yes. I would say yes. Okay, because, all right, they're they're around the same rating, I think, for you. And I would say that Maiden Heights was pushed higher because of how yeah it was like a 4.3 or how, 4. how how well you could relate to it but you know talent wise they're really good but they weren't the greatest or most unique thing i've ever heard in moments but the singer was not a she was not she was a talented singer but not the most unique singer i ever heard the dj was talented but not the most talented dj i ever heard whereas here there is no vocalist like diamanda i've never heard anyone sing like her Period. That's worth at least 0.25, if not more. Okay. I just wanted to bring that out of you. Because now, Fair as long enough. as that is an addendum to your... Then, then your rating makes sense. It's just that before it didn't seem to make sense. It was just like, I hate this album. Great, but it's great. <laughs> I, it's what it sounded like before. Blame it on the lack of sleep in the long hours. It's not yeah. the album. So I was either... I, I, was, I, was, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't have a, you know, a, a dog in the race. I was just trying to... like, If you want to be lower, be lower. You got to right. be honest with what you really genuinely feel about the album. Um, but if you believe it deserves to be there, then yeah, I agree. It's a 4.25. I'm not going to go back to it frequently, but I want more of specific things on this album, and that would push me into the upper echelon. But as far as front-to-back artistic goals, up the wazoo. And even though I am a sub-four on this album, this is something I'm going to really vehemently be recommending to other people, specific other people, that I think will get, at worst, a kick out of it. At worst, just an experience out of it, like I have with this. Because... Uh, there's, there's, there's sort of a subgenre of entertainment for me, of bad things you should still enjoy. And not to say that this is bad. No, exactly. Like just bad experiences. I think you should still enjoy. I, I want to phrase it like that specifically, because this was this album for me really was a, a negative experience, as in something I just. I just couldn't get into, but I feel like I, I'm better for experiencing the art of it. I do, I do think it's a shame when I come across people that have absolutely no threshold for any horror film whatsoever. You know, like, okay, you, I don't it, like it cannot be your you know, thing. I don't, I don't like horror, and I do not have a mm. threshold, but I still appreciate <laughs> well, Aliens, I say, Aliens, the original Friday the 13th, see, I would say, the, the original Nightmare, right, the but, real ones. Well, I would say because stuff like that, they're... They're too t- oversimplifying it. Like I don't mind certain horror movies. I have no patience for torture porn. It's just useless movie genre. To I don't me. like. I don't mm, like jump yeah. scares at all. I feel like, like, I don't like them at all. I feel like that kind of horror is just gratuitous and gross and doesn't really accomplish what yeah, a good it, horror movie does. If it doesn't, does. if it doesn't, if if minutes are passing and it doesn't serve a narrative and it just seems like shock value for shock value's sake, then no, that's not a success. Yeah. I agree. But you know, it's uh. 
I, I think that it does help sometimes, provided it's in the context of a good narrative, to be put in that position, maybe even just for the sake of helping you have a threshold for real life things that may, we hope, not have happen one day. Which is why, as much as I hate, I really do want to use that word, I hate Requiem for a Dream, I'm happy I've seen it. Like, it's, it's, it's a miserable movie that makes me feel bad, but it made me better able to deal with bad situations. Or, on a, on a flip yeah, side... Yeah, that's my, that's my eternal sunshine of a spotless mind, mind sure. as well as in oh, some, to some extent, sunshine, 500 awesome. Days of Summer, all for your, eternal, you know, guys who have trouble getting over eternal shit. Eternal Sunshine <laughs> is, is awesome, and I've, I've, I've probably seen it half a dozen times. Um... And yeah, and I would see that again. That's why I actually kind of disagreed with Matt, considering I always considered that film my equivalent for his Requiem of the Dream. Only. No, no. Yeah, I know it doesn't make a difference. I know. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I think it's a great rewatch. But um, another, another reason to see something or to enjoy something that I consider, quote, bad would be like the movie Rubber. I think is nope, one of... That's just bad. Sorry. No, no, no. Disagree. It's still one of the worst movies I've ever seen, just because the... A tire that moves on its own and is sentient, but blows up people's heads. Like, the concept is befuddling. Because I'm, you, can, you can only say that deadpan. You can't say that jokingly. You can only be said deadpan. And the movie itself is no better than that one sentence. I think we should all fear this tire that could be right around the corner. Yeah, that's it fails to deliver on that. <laughs> but uh, I feel like everybody should really see... Like, the worst of movies out there and the worst of television shows, or maybe an episode at least here and there, and should listen to the worst of music just because, just because the stuff that really is well, not good helps you understand the good. This does have to, this does have to, uh, I think, come with a lot of disclaimers that I don't think that this album is anywhere near rubber, which is why I'm a little, oh, no, 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 no. you know. It's the other side of it. Like, there should be stuff that makes you uncomfortable and makes you feel negative yeah. emotions. And there is stuff, on the other hand, that is just poorly done and poorly executed, which I think Rubber is one of those movies, that you, you still need to get those things to be able to put other stuff in context. It's a difference of uncomfortable subject versus, um, well, poor conveyance of any subject matter, right? Things that are bad so you can under... Like, it's, it helps to be on both sides of the spectrum and just at least have a certain knowledge of it. So you know what, you know, the the problems of storytelling are so you know how to avoid them in the future when it is the case of, like, Manos, The Hands of Fate and right. Rubber and things like that. But honestly, Manos is a rewatch, but that's all because of what, you know, MST3 Gate, uh, MST3K did to it. Like, I know that. Um, and I would probably watch both that and the original now just because of the way that kind of spotlighted the film. But, yeah, I also see the point in terms of, like, every other genre that is uncomfortable and maybe not my cup of tea, you should always at least dip your toes into it and sometimes even go a bit farther than you would otherwise. Actually, it goes back to one of my favorite Modest Mouse songs, The View, and it's it's a, it's a song about context. Um, when life gets softer, awful feels harder. Lines like that. Or, if it takes shit to make bliss, well then I feel pretty blissfully. Just the juxtaposition you have to have negativity to understand positivity you have to have ugliness well, yeah, to understand how, beauty how can you know what good is if you've not experienced the bad yeah that's just, exactly it that's it, exactly it and, and that's think, a good link between the two and well and i think also because we are a music podcast not a movie podcast though i think sometimes we could do one but we're not um you need to engage in these things that are considered terrible i mean 
honestly, I'm curious. Like, I think I've gotten more curiosity, and I still don't think necessarily she's a bad artist. But I think I've gotten more mileage and curiosity from Miley Cyrus because of the negative backlash that everyone's saying that she's terrible or she's an awful artist or an awful person. And I don't care about any of that. But like, I, I unironically like Wrecking Ball. I think that Bangers. There are several good tracks on that album, but I think. The morbid curiosity came from everyone panning it, or panning her at least. And I think it was important that I engaged in it because it fueled my music knowledge, expanded my curiosity, and gave me a reason to engage in an artist. You know, it's funny because that's one of the reasons why I was act very early in the series, uh, I think, when Bangers came out. Because what year was that album? I mean, it's not that old. <laughs> it was definitely within the... 2014? The good year-ish. 2014? 2015, maybe? All right, maybe it was her previous album, because I feel like it was very early in the series where I was like, let's do it. Let's do let's do the Miley Cyrus album. But I wouldn't do that under now the rate, the changes that we made just very recently, because I do recognize that if I was to do it, I feel like I'd be coming at it with a... I confess I'd be coming at it with a little bit of an MST3K mindset, being mm-hmm. like, all right, let's review this album, see what happens, hint, hint, I think I know what I'm going to say. And who knows? I could have genuinely changed my mind. We always like... That's one of the reasons we like to go even toward albums we were just we we took chances on things um just because there was always the possibility that we would come out of it with something that we never thought we would come out of it before but i do think that if that was the goal remember now it would have to under the current conditions it would have to uh, be the result of someone's preview you know don't leave yourself the room for complete and utter disappointment where we're just bashing an artist for the sake of it if other people have problems with miley cyrus and if we do and we can have it on our own terms. We don't have to have a podcast on it, unless it was a defense. Right, but that said, also on the opposite side of it, I genuinely enjoy Taylor Swift's new record, her newest one, 1989. Yeah. And if I brought it on this podcast, which I've considered... Then you'd be the advocate. I'd be an advocate. Yeah. And I'd and, still say how I feel. It's just a matter of, yeah, now we have a debate. Right, and, and I think that that's important with stuff that you engage in both ironically or unironically, is that... there's no way to expand your experience unless you engage those things. Like, I brought Dan Bull on because I like Dan Bull a lot, and I've been following his work for a while. I honestly came into the podcast expecting you to bash it, Steve, because you have a different experience with rap music, one, a very different experience with gaming and nerd culture, two, and three, you know, he's a fairly independent artist, though well-known now. He's still fairly independent, and so I thought you were going to just poop all over it, and you didn't. You, in fact, the opposite. You quite enjoyed it and really like it. I really like clever wordplay, and I understand, you know, that's going to vary from person to person. It's the same way it varies musically. Some people are going to think certain lines are clever, and some people are going to think different things. Like, there's a lot of rap music that other people say is just, it's the bee's knees. It's, it's, it's everything. It's what you should be following in terms of rap structure, and I read it, and I'm just like, eh... I'm not seeing it, but right. I saw it on that album. I saw it easily. But I think that, but I brought it on because I wanted to be an advocate and because I did think you were going to think it's bad and you didn't. And it surprised me. And I think that's really one of the, it's it's also. That was an early success under the current system, even before we had the system. Right. And I think that that, that engaging in the things that you may not even think is the best. Like I, I was afraid to bring certain albums on this podcast at moments because I was afraid it's just going to be me hopelessly defending something. You know, uh, and I've said this a few times now, the Everlast, Everlast acoustic album I brought on this podcast haunts me because 
I was an advocate, but I did not have the language to explain why. And you guys more or less crapped on it. And I couldn't defend it properly, even though I gave it a higher rating. And to yeah. this day, I feel like I haven't done it justice. And I don't want to experience that again. But the reality is, that's not the album's fault or your fault. I need to be an advocate who can articulate better. And I think engaging in stuff that's both bad or things I don't like will help me to do that better. And I'm not sure if I necessarily, I don't think I completely sold you, you know, on going back to Diamondic Gloss. Right. I do believe that I will be at least keeping an eye on her future material. Sure. I think I want to wait to see her next, you know, studio album. And I, that, even though I tend to shy away from repeats, if she does a, stu uh, excuse me, a studio non-cover album of original material, I think I will be bringing it on. Uh, just because I don't tend to do repeats usually, so I would consider that my little exception, my personal exception. My one personal exception still on repeats is All American Rejects, because the last time we did it, we talked about their growth and evolution, and I want to see if it actually happened. It was, yeah, all, it really was also want... episode eight, I think right. we warranted. Yeah, but I honestly, I think that might be the... the... That might be one of our tightest early episodes, I think, is yeah. the All American Rejects episode. I don't want to oversell that. <laughs> <laughs> I I I will Fair I still enough. listen to that. Album. But getting back to start. just one getting back to just one quick thing though. I like I said I don't know if I completely sold you know you on going back to Diamond Gloss, but I do confess that I had a little bit of a, a a prep for this that I did not expect, and that was the fact that you know over uh, a year ago now when I was working for Classical Light, I interviewed an artist that I was only just aware of at that time called Joan LaBarbera, who does interesting vocalizations herself and like d unique things that other people don't do with their vocals, and I was like okay. I I've never heard anyone like this before. I researched into what she had done, and I think I had a pretty good interview on those terms. Um, so feel free to check that out. It's on classicallight.com. It's pretty old at this point, but still, that was an interesting eye-opening experience for artists of this type, which was actually an early comparison I had, which I neglected to mention today when we started doing this, is that, yeah, that that's... Anything like that, anything that contorts what your perception of what vocals are capable of, to me, that is the kind of fringe art that I really, really like. It makes me feel things that I've never felt before. And so, yeah, I think it is an album that everyone should listen to once and at least just go a little bit further and don't run away, you know, with your tail between your legs right away. It's always worth just staying there to see what it does. And go incrementally, because normally we, if we just go from like A to Z, you know, then uh, of course you're going to run away. And I, I, I think that's just more some advice for people that do want to go a little bit further with something. Don't try to go to Z. Don't, that is, that would be setting yourself up for disappointment. And... Well, the, the the main factor is you you don't know unless you try it. Like yeah, yeah, true. Uh, as far as far as the old mom saying as it goes, I, how do you know you like it if until, you haven't even tried it? Which and, I am now quoting George Carlin as well. And okay, perfect example. I'm not a fan of Carlin. Yeah. I'm not a friend of Prior or a lot of the olds that are kind of like considered the benchmark. I'm, the I'm, I'm hit or miss with them. Yeah, I'm just I just. I like the wisdom that Carlin imparted upon the world, but I didn't find it funny. I found it informative, and I took it to heart, but he never really makes me laugh. Or going back to Seinfeld and Always Sunny, I've seen probably 40 different episodes of Seinfeld and half a dozen different episodes of Always Sunny. I just don't enjoy it. But I, I, I try to give it the, the honest college try. I try sure. to get into it. Yeah, I, I just... I, I... I just couldn't. We're not here to change other people's tastes and laughter, and I wasn't doing that. I wasn't making my case to change your taste and laughter either, but if it was on the grounds of, you know, the characters, that was where I, I strongly disagreed. 
because I want my desperately want my characters to be imperfect, and I like the same thing in my music. I like the I like the exhibition of imperfectionism. It's more true to to the human condition. This is going to be a discussion we have on when I'm driving you home. Um, but other things, I I did not know I enjoyed X Y Z until I tried it. Like yeah. honestly. I it, it, going back to something we did on the show. I I did not know I would enjoy uh, Life is Strange until I saw a YouTuber play for about five minutes. I was like, oh, that's a cool concept. Let me go. Let me go try it out. I fell in love with that game. Yeah, I think we can all agree that we fell in love with the narrative of that game. And for that's sure. that's not in my bully work. Yeah, I mean, musically, any of us really musically indie. Okay, I I, I listen to a lot of indie, uh, or I have listened to a lot of indie over the years, but a a a, a late teen female protagonist with a late teen female sidekick doing high school stuff. Did not think I would be so No, on the face value, I didn't think any of us would really get wrapped up as much as we did, and we did, really. Being the non-gamer of the group, I'll only volunteer that being that we just watched it, you know, well, John had played it. it. Me and and Matt watched it. I played the part of it. I wish it was half the length. That's all. Well, yeah, it's a game. Right. But but that said, we engaged (laughs) in with it on a level all of us didn't expect that we would and I think that was really interesting but it's also introduced me to a whole new genre of gaming yeah. of of not the telltale because I still don't like the telltale quick time events and everything like that but graphic storytelling yeah um, the late shift is another one that recently came out and it's just you making choices and they use stock video footage for it it's an interesting concept and I'm already in love with it and I've been playing it for maybe half an hour or so like I was only introduced to it by actually overcoming a prejudice about it. Yeah. I think the the, the, the essence of this is that Try new things. Right. Well, I mean at the very base level it's don't 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 make assumptions. We've made assumptions about a lot of stuff and we've often caught ourselves chewing on our foot, as it were. And so I think, you know, it's a really good goal to remember to always try new things and trust in recommendations. Even if you're not sure what you'd think of it. I mean, when... when oh, watch this. It's disgusting. You'll love it. Uh, you, know, <laughs> you know. Or it's like that Geico commercial of the two raccoons and the one raccoon going, this is terrible. You gotta try it. You know, it's it's very human but experience. And I'm all about that stuff. So that's another reason why, you know, but I know people who aren't. And I think, yeah. I, I guess it's my personal uh, bias that that's a shame. Yeah. You know. Fair enough. All right. Well, before I announce big things for the end of this episode, Steve, do you have a uh, musical term of the week? Poco a poco. Piece by piece. Italian. Little by little. Matt got it. Ooh. I was close, though. Yeah. All right. But it's Italian? Of course it's Italian. Just double checking. (laughs) So little by little. So what is it it commonly used for? Commonly used as, uh, in notation, uh, sheet music directions. Mm -hmm. Commonly you'll find it at a certain point in notation, right above the bar. Usually (coughs) there'll be these little directions. You know, sometimes it's, uh, you know, play loud, play soft. Well, actually, no, that would be commonly in the middle if you're in the grand staff. But anyway, it would be above, right? And they would tend to get a little more specific. And this doesn't actually say what it's attached to, but normally it would be something else. Like, uh, let me think of an example, let me think of an adjective or a verb. Accelerando, right? Little by little. Yeah. Accelerando, obviously, I don't think I need to make that the term of the week to yeah. accelerate. Yeah, it's definitely slow now, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> little by little. In other words, don't just do it all at don't once. Don't speed up immediately. Yeah. Don't yeah. change your tempo. And then usually it'll, Adapt it. you know, you'll see like a tempo, like back to a certain specific tempo, or maybe a new tempo, like yeah. measures and measures down the road. It really 
really exaggerates, you know, the, the length of time it takes for something to happen. So it, this is an addendum. This is an adverb. This is a musical adverb. And for the record, the score is now 1-0. I think I'm the only one to have gotten one right in a guess. Piece by piece gave you little by little, so I'm taking half a point for that one. Please, I knew it's it before one to you one, said that. It's yeah. one to a half. Steve, I get a point, right? Yes, yes, you do. All right. You yes. do get a point for this. We get other points. Don't worry, you've still got a whole season. Or not really, actually. You've got... Oh, yeah, you got a whole season until the end of the year. You've got life, man. You've got life. Yeah, it's all of life is, Grab is life the, the balls. successes. All right, so failures. we're coming to a fairly big moment for the podcast, I think, because we've talked about this band constantly. We bring them up whenever we can, and we've reviewed a related artist twice. Um, so we've reviewed the artist that's fair. twice. Um, so <laughs> I'm very excited because in, in the time between uh, when I found out about it and then you know, now bringing it on the show. We've often talked about how our next all pick, as we are trying to do a little less of them, um, would be the new Gorillaz record. And there were rumors for a little while that there wouldn't be one, that Damon was done. He had put out a solo record, which we reviewed. He put out a new Blur record, which we thought also we would never get, which we reviewed. Um, and then it was announced Humans by Gorillaz was coming out at the end of April. And so it has, and so it has been deemed our next all pick, which we will do next week. And uh, spoiler alert, I've been listening to it a lot. Hmm. Um, it's it, it, I'm excited for the Gorillas to have something new. Of course, no anyone who's been listening to this podcast knows I'm a huge fan of Damon Albert. I've been listening to him since the early days of Blur. Um, and so I'm very excited to take on this album. I will definitely be coming here as an advocate, even though it is an all-pick. So, yeah, it's a, it's a Matt pick all-pick. Pretty so, much. We all have a vested interest, but Matt has done the The, the, the decision. Labor. Yeah. Which that but, happens but, with our all-picks. But we're getting yes. uh, 2D, Murdoch, Russell, and Noodle once again. Yes. And they've aged. They've gotten a little they've, bit older. I a little bit wiser. I enjoy that. Uh, a little bit wiser, not so much. Check out the website. Probably, not so much. Probably Noodle, at least. Yes, Noodle's wiser. Okay. But I do think that's interesting is that the characters do age and that... Um, uh, uh, it's been seven years. Jamie Hallett, who, who draws those characters, does age them and change them a bit. And I think that's really cool, especially since it's been like seven years since the last yeah, record. Yeah, 2010 well, that, was classic beat. That was yeah. always common for old comic strips, you know? Yeah. Comics that you would see the aging characters, like in Doonesbury, for instance, right? Uh, was it Michael Doonesbury? Yes. He's like, you know, kind of a college student in the beginning, <coughs> and then he's uh, an older guy. Well, there you go. Well, and or like The Simpsons, which is the opposite, which they never age ever. Never age ever, no. Ever, no. Um, but I'm very excited to take on this record. And yes, I am making this declaration of all picks. So um, I, I I have a strong feeling that uh, Knockjaw will be excited about this one. Hmm. And probably Star F, if I had to guess. And if anyone is interested in our former Damon Auburn-related episodes, then check out Everyday Robots by Damon Auburn in episode 109 and The Magic Whip by Blur in episode 144. All right. Remember, as always, music is life. And, and life, life is, is good. If you enjoyed this and other album analyses, topics, and guests, please subscribe to the Crash Chords Podcast on iTunes, where you can also rate us and review us. For more media, also subscribe to Matt's one-on-one -on -one interview series, Crash Chords Autographs. To receive emails on all new content, subscribe at the top of our homepage. Also receive updates by liking us on Facebook, following us on Twitter at Crash Chords Web, our Tumblr, and our YouTube channel. And remember, keep the discussion going, because music is life, and life is good. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to share them in the comment board below each post. Otherwise, email us directly at admin at crashchords.com.